Hey, you, you're listening to Sloancast, your one-stop shop, deep diver. We discuss anything and everything about the greatest band of all time. Andrew Scott, Jay Ferguson, Chris Murphy, and Patrick Pentland, collectively known as Sloan. We are your fellow superfan hosts. I'm Rob. This is Ken. Ken, what's good, my friend? Oh, I'm doing great, man. I'm, I feel as though we've been dancing around this topic for a long time. It's something we've wanted to, to touch on probably since day one. Mm. And uh, now that we're a year and a half into the podcast, I feel as though we're mature enough to deal with it in an adult manner. Um, <laughs> but I am I am happy that we have uh, a guest on today who uh, will certainly have a, a unique approach to this album, um, having you know come into contact with the band shortly before uh, the album was released. And many of you might know him um, he is a writer. You might know his work from the The Ringer. Uh, ben Lindbergh, joining us from New York City. Is that correct, Ben? That is correct. Whereabouts are you in New York? I am right in the heart of it all. I'm in Midtown Manhattan. Holy crap! Wow. I can't yeah. hear. I can't hear the ambulances yet. <laughs> you might at some point during this episode. We'll see. Hopefully, it's late enough that we don't get an emergency nine one one situation going hey, on here. All right. A, refer- a reference right up the top, buddy. I love it. <laughs> well, coming in hot. Coming in <laughs> yeah. hot. Well, well, thank you so much for having me. Because whenever I'm on a podcast, I always say thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here, and I do usually mostly mean it. But I have never meant it more than right now. I think seriously, oh, I'm like giddy to get to talk to you guys about Sloan because full disclosure for the listeners, I basically invited myself onto the podcast, which (laughs) I don't usually go around inviting myself onto people's podcasts, but I had to shoot my shot this time because I love this band and this podcast is sort of a sanctuary for me because I'm so starved for Sloan discussion in my daily life. So (laughs) you are really fulfilling a need for me. It's like, I don't know whether you guys have experienced this because you are maybe more plugged into the the Sloan fan community than I am. But there's kind of a cognitive dissonance that happens when you're a huge Sloan fan because Mm. most of the world just inexplicably seems to be going around acting as if Sloan is not the best band in the world. And it's like everyone has been body snatched or brainwashed or something. Mm. And it makes me question, like, wait, am am I the one who's way off here? (laughs) Is Sloan not actually as incredible as I think they are? But then I listen to Sloancast and suddenly everything makes sense again. The world is back in order. So I just feel like I'm on an island all the time. I guess I am physically on an island, but also I'm I'm on Sloan Island, so I'm happy to be here with you guys today. Nice. Yeah, you're that you're that principal Skinner meme come to life. (laughs) Is it the children who are out of touch? No. (laughs) Yeah. A few years ago I was so desperate just to talk about Sloan to someone else as opposed to myself as usual that I was considering starting my own Sloan podcast with another journalist, Joshua Benton, and then I ended up working on a book and a few things came up and now I don't need to start a Sloan podcast because you did and it's way better than mine would have been. So thank you. That's nice of you. That's high praise. That's high praise. Thank you very much for those for those kind words. Um it's uh it's interesting that you mentioned, you know, having that that perception of uh of Sloan being sort of the the best the worst best or the best worst kept secret what's the what's the word that i'm looking for that's probably the right the right order to use but um i can certainly relate to that uh especially since having moved overseas and uh it gives you uh it gives you a special perspective on on stuff like the stuff we're going to be talking about today Mm -hmm. uh and it's you know i i I wanted to touch on your 
your own personal story uh, yeah. first, because I think that that's a really unique one. And, you know, once you start getting into it, maybe people will start recognizing, you know, who you are, because I know that there are videos circulating in the in the social networks. Um, yeah. that, nothing that, nothing uh, compromising. <laughs> it's good stuff. <laughs> yes, but uh, that that have uh, that have, you know, received views from uh, from some of our listeners, but, um, just, yeah. you know, as a, as a, as an intro, maybe you could kind of go into your own personal story, start sure. wherever you want. It doesn't have to be, you know, with, with your introduction to the band, mm-hmm. um, and just go through, uh, you know, go through who you are and how you then came into, into touch with the G boat. <laughs> so yes, I, I guess the headline here, my claim to distinctiveness as a Sloan fan and the reason that I'm on the show, aside from the fact that I asked to be, <laughs> is that my wife and I went to a Sloan show on our first date. And then some years later, we got engaged also at a Sloan show at the same venue on stage with Sloan's assistance, <laughs> sort of a, a Sloan assisted stunt proposal. And then some years after that, we had a daughter and we named her Sloan. <laughs> so Dude. I have hit the trifecta here, I Li- guess. At, <laughs> living the dream, this, man. Yeah, yeah. At, at this point, like, I mean, the only thing I could do to involve Sloan in my major personal milestones more than I have is, is have them perform at my funeral or something, which would be sad <laughs> because uh, I'm significantly younger than the members of Sloan. So I would, I would have to die young for that to happen. But do I want to live in a world without Sloan anyway? Okay. So I guess just to back up slightly to share a little bit of my Sloan origin story to explain how I got to that first date and Every Sloan fan loves talking about how they discovered Sloan. <laughs> it's like talking about how you met your romantic partner. And in my case, right. it's sort of all the same story. <laughs> so it's uh, it's a relief to tell my Sloan story to someone who actually knows Sloan as opposed to someone who's just nodding politely and looking at their watch. So let's see. Like your frequent guest, Aaron Pinto, I am more of a latecomer to Sloan, although I guess my Sloan fandom slightly predates Aaron. I'm what you have called a third-generation Sloan fan, so I found Sloan about halfway through their career as we speak in early 2022. Hopefully, it'll end up being a lot less than halfway by the time they're finished, but maybe we can call it the Greg McDonald era. That's basically when I came Mm. in. So, I was four when they got together, so I guess I have an excuse not to have known them earlier. And also, I live in the States, so that'll do it too. Um, But I think like a lot of Sloan fans and and like a lot of Sloan members, I grew up sort of steeped in 60s and 70s music and absorbed a love of the music of a generation or three before mine. I I guess my parents were a bit older than the parents of most of my friends, and Mm. I spent a lot of time with my grandparents. So I just learned to love older culture and, and just got introduced to all of that and Roy Orbison and Buddy Holly and the Beach Boys and the Beatles and then the Beatles solo careers and Badfinger and ELO, you know, just hmm. all all through the pantheon, right? The usual suspects. So I was always kind of looking for something new that sounded kind of classic and vintage. And I was mostly striking out, I think, in finding something that satisfied me the way that the things I had really grown up with did. Hmm. And in 2007, I was home for the summer after my sophomore year of college. And here's where I should 
probably say that even though I was born in New York and have always lived here, I am half Canadian. My dad is Canadian, uh-huh. so I am a, a dual citizen. There is a, a Canada connection here. And I visited Canada a lot, more on the West Coast than the East Coast, but I've never lived there. And I wouldn't say I've ever been super plugged into Canadian pop culture as distinct from American pop culture. So I didn't discover Sloan that way. But my Canadian side did lead me to them indirectly because in 2007, Sloan played a free Canada Canada Day concert in Central Park. Mm -hmm. And they were on the bill with a couple of other bands. I think it was Apostle of Hustle and the Ducks were playing as well. And my mom was on an email list about events in Central Park. So because of the Canada connection, she she forwarded me this message about the concert which I believe had blurbs about the bands. I knew nothing about mm-hmm. Sloan, but the Sloan description, unsurprisingly, said that they were Beatlesque, <laughs> which we've all mm-hmm. heard a thousand times, right? right. And Beatlesque, I mean, you guys have talked about the Beatles and Sloan comparisons enough that I don't need to do it again. But up mm-hmm. until that point, I think I'd almost always been disappointed by bands that were described as Beatlesque. I found that <laughs> the hit rate was really low. Either it ended up being like a derivative Beatles tribute band type sound Mm. or just kind of paled in comparison. So I find that Sloan hits some of the same pleasure centers that the Beatles do maybe without coming close to pastiche. So they're just sort of, yeah, they're the platonic ideal of Beatlesque, I guess. But I had been burned by Beatlesque before. So Mm. I figured I'd give it a shot. And I guess I could have started anywhere in the catalog, but Never Hear the End of It was the latest album, and I figured they'd be touring on that. So I started there, and man, it was just love it, first listen. (laughs) And I know we've all been there, and I could tell right away that this was music for me. So I just remember the feeling of almost euphoria, just like sitting in the middle of my childhood bedroom back from college. It was like, I don't know if you've seen the freaks and geeks scene where Lindsay listens to American Beauty for the first time. (laughs) She starts out like sitting down in the daytime and then the sun's going down and she's still listening and dancing. And that was probably what I looked like listening to Never Hear the End of It for the first time. So. Yeah. In retrospect, I'm not sure I could have picked a better introduction to Sloan than starting out with Flying High Again into Who Taught You to Live Like That. I mean, that that sums it up right there. So you you get the four different voices just off the bat. It's like, okay, this is not the typical band. (laughs) These are four different people singing. And then it segues right into the harder rocking song. And that, I think, sets them apart because I like a lot of what be, would be called power pop, but I, I often find that it's almost too sweet or too mm. light or like raspberry style power pop without a right. lot of edge to it, you yeah. know, yeah. which can be fine for a while. But the fact that Sloan gives you that, the melodies and the harmonies, and then combines that with the hardcore, hard rock sensibilities, it's just this perfect synthesis. It's special. So. I listened to those two songs, and then there are 28 more. <laughs> it's like, who are these guys? <laughs> what? And, you know, then you get the Abbey Road, Red Rose Speedway-style song suites on that album, and I'm mm. a huge McCartney head, so that was up my alley, so I was sold. So I went to this concert by myself because I didn't have any Sloan fan friends, and then I was introduced to the Sloan live experience, which is also 
overwhelming in a wonderful way mm. the first time, right? I mean, and what venue first, was this? Yeah, this was just right in Central Park. It, it's like right in the middle of the park. There's a, basically a, a stage or like a band shell oh, type wow. thing. Yeah, and I mean, you know, first this guy's singing and then that guy's singing and then the <laughs> drummer is playing guitar and the bassist is playing drums and also they're incredibly charismatic and funny and personable and sticking mm. around after the concert. So it was just like a whirlwind musical romance, basically. It's mm. like that early stage when you start dating someone and <laughs> your your brain is just like flooded with chemicals and you're thinking like, <laughs> can this be real? Is this like too good to be true? Am I going to discover something that ruins this for me but nothing did obviously <laughs> it's like every album i listened to was like going on another great date so mm-hmm. then you know you reach the stage where you can differentiate each of the members and at first it's like a fun little guessing game where you're like who's that is that chris is that andrew and then gradually you learn to tell them apart and appreciate mm-hmm. the differences and it starts to seem almost selfish of them to hog so much musical talent in one band <laughs> but you're <laughs> glad that they did so i went back to school i got my roommate russ into them we listened to a ton of sloan i remember i was taking a rock history course and i wrote an essay analyzing fading into obscurity because okay. we had to pick a song with a, an interesting structure yeah and that gives you a lot to work with and because I'm a writer, I'm always looking for an excuse to write about Sloan. So back when I was at Grantland, I wrote a recommendation for Commonwealth. And a few years ago at The Ringer, I talked my editor into doing something on Sloan's like tips for not breaking up a band, basically, right. which I talked to Jay and Chris for. So mm. not only did I love Sloan, but they were kind of like a bridge to contemporary music for me. It was like... Okay, I don't need to be a snob about this I, and hate my generation. You know, it's like there's amazing music now. You just need to know where to find it. And maybe mm. it's not like on top 40 radio or whatever, but it's out there. And these guys are as good as anyone's ever been. So in the years since then, I maybe, maybe have broadened my musical palette a bit, but Sloan really just expanded my horizons and no one else has surpassed them since. So. Fast forward a few years. I'm out of school. I'm 24 at this point. My most recent girlfriend and I hadn't had a lot of interests in common. I mean, we got along and we liked each other, but whenever it was time to watch something or listen to something, it was like our interests just didn't gel, which Mm. can work, I think, in some relationships. But I was just sort of starved for being with someone who I could enjoy things with, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. And I had met that previous girlfriend on a blind date, which is maybe why (laughs) it was just a a chance encounter kind of. And so this time I decided, okay, I'm going to go online. I'm going to try to meet someone who shares my interests to a certain extent, you know, not that I had like a checklist where, oh, she has to be a Sloan fan or something. No, but it sounds <laughs> like... I would have limited yeah, my I mean, dating to, pool probably, but... <laughs> to hit you with a, you know, a comparison for a second, like I love the line in High Fidelity where Rob says, you know, the things that we like, you know, the things that define us are important things, you know, like they really... You know, when you link up with somebody in a relationship about something that you have in common that you love, I mean, like there's nothing better than that, you know? Yeah. And so we connected. She messaged me. I think it was about an author that I said I had liked, but we had some of the same musical tastes on our profiles on OkCupid. And so (laughs) we were just kind of 
chatting and flirting for a while back and forth. And we had actually both just joined. She was one of the first people I had messaged with, which was fortuitous. But we were kind of just, you know, not sure exactly when to say, so should we meet in real life or how do we do this? And there happened to be a Sloan concert coming Mm -hmm. up at the Bowery Ballroom in late June of 2011. A.K.A. the perfect aphrodisiac. Go on. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I guess it was in my case. And so I thought, okay, well, we could just do a standard date and go to a bar or have dinner or something. But I've got a Sloan concert coming up. And if she doesn't like Sloan, that would be a bad sign anyway. And so maybe we'll just go to a, a Sloan concert. And I know that some of my friends then and since then have said, like, you went to a concert for your first date? Like, isn't that a, a weird venue because you can't really talk, <laughs> you know, and mm-hmm. it's loud and can you really get to know each other? But in this case, because we had been corresponding for a while, we felt like we did know each other a bit and, you know, we met for a drink first. So it wasn't like we walked in and Pen Pals is playing or whatever. We, we got to <laughs> chat for a while. And so I suggested that we go to this concert and she was up for it and I sent her some links you know hey maybe check out Twice Removed or mm-hmm. <laughs> I think all of their music was streaming on their website at the time so I just said you know check them out maybe you'll like them I didn't want to be one of these people who's like okay if you want to date me you have to watch this movie and <laughs> listen to this band and read this book you know where it's like you're giving them homework or something but obviously I hoped she would like it and she did or at least she said she did <laughs> she really love twice removed so we went to the concert and it was great and i'm sure that some bands maybe for a first date would be a weird vibe but Mm. with a sloan show you know everyone's happy and they're so friendly and it's just a good crowd and everyone's having a good time and i feel like it was kind of perfect and I got a second date, so (laughs) it worked out pretty well, and uh, we kept seeing each other. I actually had tickets to see Paul McCartney shortly after that, and Mm -hmm. so I took her to see Paul on our third date, so I was really pulling out all the stops, I guess, Um, just introducing her to to all of the music that I love, and and she loved it too. So Sloan kind of just became part of our relationship in that way because we met through Sloan in a sense. And, you know, then we were dating for a few years and everything was going great. And there was a time when I considered, what if I proposed at a Sloan show? Like, would that be corny, you know? Mm. And, like, do I want to sabotage everyone else's concert experience (laughs) to, like, (laughs) you know, have my special moment? It's like these people just want to see Sloan, you know? So (laughs) is it selfish to do that? But... Once I thought of it, it was just kind of tempting, especially if it could happen in the same place, in the Bowery Ballroom, where we had gone on our first date. I just thought, you know, bring things full circle. And I just kept dwelling on that. And and my friend Ruhi, who's a a big Sloan fan and a musician in Toronto, I don't know whether you guys have seen the video of her singing Light Years with Sloan, I think in Buffalo in 2007. That's right. And that may have given me part of the idea because I was like, wait, you can do that? (laughs) You can get on stage with Sloan and sing with them? That's an option? So between all of that, it was just on my mind. And there was a time, I want to say it was 
2015. It was 2015 when they were actually playing Bowery Ballroom on our anniversary. And I thought, well, this would be perfect. But we were in California at the time because I was working on a book out there and she spent the summer out there with me. And so we couldn't come back for the show. So I missed that opportunity. But in 2016, they came back. Wasn't on our anniversary, but it was Bowery Ballroom. So it was close enough. And I had a connection to them because I do a a baseball podcast called Mm -hmm. Effectively Wild and One day I played a Super Friends song on the show as an intro or an outro, and I got an email from a former member of Super Friends, Drew Yamada, who said, hey, I listened to your podcast, and I love it, and you played a song from my band. (laughs) And then, yeah, we went back and forth a bit, and I said, hey, do you know the guys in Sloan, and would you talk to them about this? Do you think they'd be okay with this? And he said, yeah, he thought they'd be into it. And he offered to pass along the request. And so it worked out. And uh, Drew passed along the request. And I heard from Mike Nelson. And we set it up and made the date. And uh, it was, I guess, what, October, mid-October 2016. Mm -hmm. And he said they'd be okay with it. And I requested a song. I requested Deeper Than Beauty just Mm -hmm. because that had become kind of a a significant song to me and and my girlfriend at the time. And it's just like the best sing-along song, I think, that there is. (laughs) And so we thought it would be fun to kind of use that as a a proposal song or, or to sing that with them if I could. And I showed up before the concert for the sound check and got to set foot on the Sloan bus. And it was uh, exciting and intimidating. And like, obviously, the nerves are off the charts because I'm about to propose, right? And on top of that, (laughs) I'm also meeting Sloan and like about to stand on stage and help sing a song with Sloan in front of a sold out crowd. That's too many things I would have passed out. It is. I I remember (laughs) proposing and I remember meeting Sloan and I can't imagine combining those things in one day. Yeah, (laughs) it was a a high pressure situation. (laughs) So a lot about that day is a bit of a blur for me now. Um, But, you know, I had some friends and and future in-laws sort of uh, sprinkled around the crowd with cameras to try to capture That's the so moment. Cool. Yeah, and it's like the Beastie Boys is... concert video. Like, hey, I shot that. <laughs> there is a like a stitched together collage of of all the various angles that I sent you guys. So if you want to share it, you can. Awesome. Uh, but I, I met up with them and we talked about what we we're going to do. And I think Chris was like, can you guys sing at all? <laughs> like, you know, are you going to ruin the concert? <laughs> and my wife has a, a master's in, in vocals. And so she can sing right. and I can carry a tune, at least under normal circumstances, although this was not <laughs> normal circumstances. But it went down. We had the break after the first set, right? And I made as if I was going to the bathroom and it was an extended bathroom break and I was not returning, but I went up to the little tiny green room that they have upstairs at Bowery Ballroom, still under the fiction that I'm just in a long line for the bathroom or whatever. The first set, by the way, (laughs) just trying to like enjoy the concert as I know that this is all about to happen. It's an unusual concert experience. So I was just sitting up there with Sloan and I think they were 
maybe a bit flattered by the whole thing, but also a bit bemused. Like, who is this guy? <laughs> Why does he want to propose at our show? Because no one had done this before. I don't know that anyone had ever asked to do this before. And I think it was Andrew was like, is she going to say yes? <laughs> because that might bring down the mood a bit, right? <laughs> she says no. How do you play the second step? The second set after that? Jesus, uh, what do you play? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. playing solo. <laughs> exactly right. But yeah, and you know, I was I was confident uh, because she had been dropping hints, and uh, and I hope she's not mad to hear that I had been like considering this a year or more before we actually did it and didn't mm. <laughs> pop the question sooner because I was waiting for a Sloan show to coincide, <laughs> with, <laughs> which I, I swear was not just because I was using this as an excuse to meet Sloan. It was because I thought it would be a, a special moment for, for both of us. So, Though it is a good excuse I, I mean, for anybody listening. Oh, yeah. yeah. Great excuse. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's a lot of legwork to go through to use it as an excuse if that's your only motivation. I yeah. mean, you have to put a lot of time into the relationship to get to that point but yeah it was uh, just a nice perk on top of the fact that i was uh, getting engaged to the woman that i love so i walked down with them and you know chris was like i want to introduce our friend ben Lindbergh," and i went up and said something that i can barely remember and gave a quick little bit of background about how i'd gone on my first date at bowery ballroom with jesse and She's here. And of course, you know, the second that she saw me walk out on stage, she knew what was happening. And I think that was captured by the cameras. <laughs> A little crazy. look of shock. Yeah, she had suspected, I think. But until I walked out there, she didn't really <laughs> believe maybe. And then she walked out. And I did the whole traditional get down on one knee. And she said yes. And then we sang a song. We sang Deeper Than Beauty with Chris and really with the whole audience. And because it's such a sing-along song, it kind of felt like everyone was in on that moment with us. And I was definitely hearing more like ahs than boos. <laughs> Bring back Sloan. <laughs> this, you know? this is New York. So, you know, yeah. Yeah, right. You never know. But <laughs> probably a lot of Canadians in the crowd. So, sure, you know, sure. very gracious. And it's a slow show, yeah. And it's a Sloan show. So it just worked out wonderfully. And, you know, we have uh, a bootleg recording of that concert that we listen to on our anniversary sometimes. And oh, I think, you know, we were both a little off key, <laughs> I think, in <laughs> retrospect, when we listen back, it's like that was not our best work because of the emotions of the moment and, you know, not having monitors or being used to performing <laughs> with Sloan. So I don't know that we nailed the the vocals on that one. We could do better if, uh, if we ever get another chance. But the important thing was that she said yes, and it worked out great. And we documented the moment. And from what I heard afterward, like, seemingly the guys were pretty touched and teary-eyed about it and, like, really happy with how it went down. And you can sort of see that I think in the video because Greg was filming as well and then there's mm, some wow. videos from other angles and uh, you can see like even even Andrew who's you know usually just up there looking like his silver fox cool <laughs> self during the, the concert you know he was smiling and seemed to be into it so great. it was just it was great and you know fast forward a few more years and we had a kid <laughs> which was just a little more than five months ago and wow, congrats, man. I didn't realize it was so recent. 
Yeah, and I just felt like Sloan would be the right name once we knew it was a girl. And, you know, my wife, I think, had some misgivings because she didn't want to come off as, like, an obsessive Sloan superfan who's, like, stalking this band and naming kids after them. Hey, there's nothing and wrong with being an obsessive Sloan superfan. No, I mean... I just want to put that out in this, there. Just in this company, I, I feel... Yeah, I mean, talking to you guys, nothing wrong with that at all. But in other company, I mean, sure, sure. the thing I, is, you know, Sloan does not have the name recognition where you say, here's our daughter Sloan, and they say, oh, like the band, you know? Right. So... It's not like you called them Jimmy Page or something, you know? Right. I mean, I wish that were the case, but um, I wish people said, oh, yeah, like Sloan, the band that I love and everyone loves. But that's not really the case. But, you know, we liked the name, I think, just mm. independent of the band. Like, we have positive associations with the name because of the band, but also we just like the name. Sure. And we yeah. like that it's somewhat distinctive in that she's probably not going to have three other Sloans in her class, totally. but it's also not like one of those names you've never heard before where it's mm. like the parents are, are trying too hard or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, like, Jesus, there's so a kid in my neighborhood uh, and his name is Riker and his brother oh, as a, is, another get on board with that. is another Star Trek <laughs> name too. And hey man, nothing against yeah. Star Trek names and I'm just like, yeah. Jesus. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, yeah, that's the perfect thing because it's like you hear Riker and it's like you know who that kid is named after, right? <laughs> Which, and there aren't a lot, I, a lot of like, other Rikers at the daycare. Right. And I like Riker too but the nice thing about naming a kid Sloan is that no one really makes that connection unless you're on the Sloan cast. Yeah, but yeah. also, you know, I, I try to make the distinction, I guess, just in case like anyone from Sloan is listening and is super creeped out right now, that I think we named her not so much after the band, but after the significance that the band had in our relationship. Mm -hmm. You know, the fact that you can sort of tell the story of our <laughs> affair through Sloan and the fact that we met in person for the first time with Sloan there and then we got engaged with Sloan there and now we're having a kid. It That's just great. sort of fit. And my wife came around eventually and uh, now I think she is as on board with it as I am and, and is very happy that we named her Sloan. So every time I hear Sloan, I get to think of my daughter and every time I think of my daughter, I get to think of Sloan. It's a perfect world. Dude, you're living, like I said, living the dream, man. I mean, dude, <laughs> yeah. so great. I, yeah. I mean, I gotta be honest, like, uh, I admit fully that, um, I, uh, may, I, I had considered when proposing to my now wife, including Sloan in some way, and I don't think I've ever told anybody this, but, um, I had considered reaching out to Chris because I'd seen some videos, you know, where it's like, you know, two people meet in a park and there's like their favorite singer in the corner. <laughs> right, right. And I don't know what I was thinking. I chickened out big time. But if any, but if had, had I gone through with it, I was going to ask Murph to play uh, someone I can be true with because uh, uh, I love those lyrics and, you know, the thing about yeah. brown eyes and stuff and blah, blah, blah. But I totally chickened out. But anyway, just to throw that out there. Uh, <laughs> but I love that you went yeah. through with it, man. So awesome. What a story. Wow. Yeah. I, I didn't ask them to play a special concert for me, which See, probably yeah, would have been go. presumptuous. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. showed up at their concert, and I bought <laughs> tickets and everything. So <laughs> You held up your side of the bargain for sure. Yeah, and you know, hopefully it was fun for the fans who were there in attendance too, because uh, you know, a lot of them 
go see Sloan every year, right? Whenever they show up. And so at least this was a distinctive concert experience. It was the only Sloan show, at least to my knowledge, with an engagement. So yeah, Sloan has just, you know, been very special to me in a number of ways, both musically and just as a band I love, but also in the fact that they kind of brought my wife and, and me together in more than one way. So it's a, a special little love affair with the band and also a real love affair that is related to the band. <laughs> right. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. Like, what a story. No, yeah. thank Holy you smokes. for and there's, giving me the mic here. Yeah, I appreciate it. There's there's a litmus test at a couple of points in that story for me. The first litmus test <laughs> is you, you know, your, your entry to the band was never heard the end of it. Yeah. Um, and this is something I think that we can maybe dote on a little bit in the coming minutes when, when we start to talk about uh, parallel play, which is our topic of the day, mm-hmm. aside from uh, Ben Lindbergh. But um, <laughs> the, you know, like your introduction to the band is a, is an album with 30 songs on it that has basically for, you know, from my perspective, no outside, uh, uh, limitations in terms of like a record company staring down their shoulder, staring over their shoulder and telling them to do this and that and sort of the product of, of just rambling, uh, creativity, like, was that intimidating for you at all? Did you like at that entry point, was it almost like halfway through the album? You're just like, this is exhausting or what? How, how did that feel? Cause I know how I felt as somebody who'd been into the band for 10 plus years by that right. point in time. You're already slowed but, on Sloan. You're probably like more Sloan, the better, right? Yeah. But, but my, <laughs> my intro to Sloan was one chord and that's like mm. over in 40 minutes. Yeah. I think if it had started out slow, if I hadn't been hooked from almost the first second with Flying High again and then into Who Taught You, I mean, it was just such a a mix of styles and just grabbed me so immediately that the idea of going on this long journey with this band that I had just met was actually kind of exciting or Mm. intoxicating. And also it was like, well, these guys must be ambitious, right? I mean, they're not just, you know, pumping out a few songs so that they can put a record out. Like there's a a concept here. There's an idea here and it's hearkening back to other classic music that I love and yet it's not just imitating it and you know songs are flowing one to the next and so I don't remember I mean maybe when I looked up the album I don't remember if I looked at the track list before I started playing it (laughs) because maybe that could have been a bit daunting Mm -hmm. if it's Mm -hmm. like I've never heard these guys and now I'm committing to 30 songs all of a sudden but Because they just hooked me immediately. It was like, I'm along for the ride, however long that ride will be. I always find, you know, if if, if we're going to put Beatles Beatles comparisons out there, um, and, you know, music journalists often do the whole White Album thing. Yeah. I always find that Never Hear the End of It is over so quick. Like, I listen to it, and by the time I'm at you know, whatever, maybe uh, it's not the end of the world or something. I'm looking at my watch. I'm like, seriously? It's like, I just started. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and white album, white album is, I, you know, there's the, I, I had it on CD obviously first. And there was always a point in me, even as a huge Beatles fan where I'm like, ah, do I really want to put on the second CD? Mm-hmm. Like it starts with birthday. I don't know, but um, you know, you it's can uh, skip revolution nine. It's okay. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> the you know it's i think that that's for me i say litmus test because when we touch upon our next topic um for today 
the reviews that I was reading of, of the album in preparation for, um, uh, of Parallel Play in preparation for this episode, uh, were the, the, the point of comparison is always never hear the end of it for, especially for us writers. That was a year before, cause the album was released a little bit earlier, uh, a little bit later in the U S mm-hmm. and, uh, it's interesting to see how sort of the, the mainstream music journalism reacts to an album like Never Hear the End of It, especially American mainstream music journalism. But I had, you know, I'd, I'd been seeing comments about this is art pop and, you know, it's uh, predictable. And thank goodness Parallel Play came out because it takes all of the best qualities of Never Hear the End of It and puts it into a bite-sized format. But it's, you know, it's interesting that I think that's the litmus test. Are you a super fan or are you not a super fan? Because if you cannot be with the band when they're putting 30 songs onto onto vinyl um then you know you don't the, deserve them when it's 13 that's, that's yeah. the one yeah exactly you don't deserve them when it's parallel play <laughs> yeah yeah i know what you mean and i think never the end of it is still i mean it holds a special place for me because it was my introduction so it's hard to separate it from that mm. but like you i mean even now knowing that it's a bit of a time commitment it doesn't feel that way and so it's not like oh am i gonna put on this whole thing no it's like yeah i am and i'm just gonna go along for the ride because it does go pretty quickly and i think you know it it makes sense to talk about parallel play in comparison to or in contrast to Never hear the end of it. You know, just, I mean, every album to some extent, not with Sloan exclusively, but with a lot of mm-hmm. bands is is a reaction to their previous yeah. one or ones, right? And so Never Hear the End of It is so bold, you know? It's just such a big swing. It's just, we're going for it. Mm-hmm. And Parallel Play was the first album, as you alluded to, that I was able to experience and anticipate in real time as a Sloan fan. and. I remember watching grainy videos of Witch's Wand being performed live in the months mm. leading up to its release and thinking, oh, this, this sounds promising. This is catchy. Mm. And just getting to be hyped about this band that I had not known about for that long at that point. And I find all these years later, I guess it's hard to characterize parallel play in the Sloan catalog just because – Especially the two albums that preceded it hold such distinctive places, you know? I mean, every Sloan album has a story or a sound or kind of a concept associated with it. And you think of action-packed and you think of just the sort of straight-ahead rock and just, you know, the guitar and the bass and just, you know, no Andrew songs and having a producer for the first time and making a bit of a bid for U.S. radio play. Like, there's all this stuff that goes along with action-packed, right? And then Mm. never hear the end of it. There are all the things that we've been talking about now. I mean, it's so distinctive. It's a 30-track album. And then you get to Parallel Play, and at least in comparison with those, it's a bit more of a back-to-basics, meat and potatoes. There's not as much of a a gimmick to it or a, mm. a special hook to it. I mean, there are hooks. There are hooks in every Sloan song. But, you know, something that sets it apart, I guess, that gives it a special significance in the Sloan catalog. I mean, at the time, I guess it was their shortest album, but now it's not even that, right? Mm. So it's like, you know, you have the album that's this and the album that's that, and then you have Parallel Play, which is another Sloan album, which is great. (laughs) We all want another Sloan album. We love every Sloan album to a varying degree, right? 
but it doesn't just sort of stand up there in big flashing lights and say, this is what this album is, right? This is yeah. how it's different from everything else. It's, it's, um, I think it's good that you touched on the sort of self-referential nature of the Sloan catalog and that uh, I think it starts with Pretty Together. Pretty Together was the curveball uh, mm. in in their um, in their catalog up until that point. And I know that their fan reaction to Pretty Together was mixed and remains mixed. Um, but Action Pact would not have happened if Pretty Together hadn't been what it was. Uh, mm. Never Hear the End of It would, would not have happened if Action Pact wasn't Action Pact. Uh, and I think that Parallel Play seems to be sort of a muted reaction to what Never Hear the End of It was, you know, whereas Never Hear the End of It was sprawling and prodigious, um, Parallel Play seems like seasoned and it sounds really kind of like, I don't know, it sounds, it's it's short, it's sweet, and it's humble. Like Never Hear the End of It has a lot of swagger in places, uh, you know, where Never Hear the End of It was very do-it-yourself uh, and had an analog quality. I think that Parallel Play sounds in some places even more professional uh and digital obviously the the production quality is a different quality um and however and i, I like unfortunately i feel that the spontaneity that made never hear the end of it what it is and such an endearing experiment for like true fans of the band and that's what i'm saying is it's like the litmus test you know can you hang with them for 30 songs um that that quality is kind of missing on parallel play, and that the album is almost handicapped by by its sequencing and and certainly by discrepancies in in song selection. And I think that those are points. You know, I'm, I don't want to come out here right off the bat and say parallel play is my least favorite Sloan album, which unfortunately it is. I mean, I'm not going to you know cut corners here, but um, that being said, and we've t- we've said this numerous times over the history of the podcast my least favorite sloan album is still way better than my favorite you know i don't know <laughs> oasis album or something it's it's still way better than my favorite album of, of other bands that i like you know mm-hmm. so that's um that's uh that's sort of the the dig that i get on parallel play is that and having gone through all of the albums up until that point and having i think in comparison to other fans that i uh you know, that, that I, that I, that I associate with or I associated with, uh, in the early and mid two thousands. Um, I felt as though I was really strongly championing each new album that came out, you know, Hey guys, listen to pretty together, really listen to it. You know, don't, don't come at me with your people of the sky chants and this and that, like this <laughs> really listen to pretty together or like action pact isn't that bad. It's such a, li- a great live album and the, the tour was great. And, like guys never hear the end of it the best the best album ever and then parallel play comes and it's sort of this like what do i like what do i latch on to here yeah well let me start at the start before i kind of give my little uh, two cents on this topic um as we kind of proceed into really officially talking about the album here um parallel play comes out june 10th 2008 um Mm. Uh, you know, com- by comparison to the previous album, it's a little over half an hour. It's listed as produced by Sloan and Nick DeToro, who was their sound guy at the time. And he would be sort of like the man at the console in their sort of makeshift uh, rehearsal space, studio space uh, here in Toronto. Um, it's the ninth full length from the guys. Um Believe in Me obviously was a single, Not a Kid, Not a Kid Anymore was officially one. Uh, we're going to talk mm-hmm. about when we get to which is one, the video, which I think is awesome. Uh, and um, 
the album was actually nominated in Canada, Rock Album of the Year at the 2009 Juno Awards. So that's kind of cool. Um, anyway, so getting to, uh, now that the sort of intro is out of the way, the topic at hand, it's funny, you mentioned earlier, uh, Ken, the, the uh, comment about Bite Size Never Hear the End of It. And I think that's kind of fair in a way. Like to me, some of these songs feel like they could have maybe existed in that, in, you know, the Never Hear the End of It universe. And, um, you know, it's weird because even at the time, I, I'm, I'm thinking as we're talking about this, you know, getting into the album more, you know, what is it about the record that's in, in, in some fans' minds makes it feel a little less than or whatever? Because as I'm listening to it, you know, for the past, you know, since we started the podcast in preparation for doing an episode on the the, the, the record, and then especially today, re-listening to it a ton, uh, preparing for today, um, like, I don't get it. I don't get the whole, like, knock on it. You know what I mean? And I was, I was thinking just as I was sitting here listening to you guys talk about it, what is it that sort of sets it apart and maybe makes it feel like the backseat, uh, you know, companion to never hear the end of it. And I wonder, is it the artwork, <laughs> you know, which, <laughs> which, you know, it's fine. It's great. The guys look cool or whatever, but it's, it's definitely my least favorite. I, I don't know that it's my least yeah. favorite Sloan album. It's my least favorite artwork for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, their artwork is a million times better than every other band's best artwork or whatever. Um, and I remember, I think it was the Murder Records account. Um, sometime last year, Jay had posted a thing about um, there's like a pamphlet, um, a mental health facility brochure called Communication Arts. Uh, and we had posted it on Sloancast last year. I'll probably repost it when this episode comes out. And it's an image uh, that says the word images. And there's these little blocks kind of, you know, crumbling down and creating the word. And then those little blocks are falling down and sort of into a picture of a woman's face. Uh, and that idea is very interesting. This picture, of course, is sort of black and white. Um, it kind of is has a little more in common with between, between the Bridges, which I'll be getting to in a second. And I don't know if maybe it just needed to be something a little more simpler. Like, I love the inside cover picture of the guys in the, in the record anyway mm. it's just like them at their eyes like it's cut off right mm. at their eyes i think that's a really cool image i don't really have an, an idea for how this could have been uh, executed a little bit better but just it, they've matched the brochure like the font of the, of the word sloan is great but i don't know if it's just the color like the burgundy the the word slow it kind of just it, the, the image of the band kind of blends into the background a little bit and it kind of just looks a little beigey and rusty and I don't know. It's not as striking as, say, Navy Blues and Never Hear the End of It, for example. In terms of album covers, I mean, you can't top those. They're just fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Where Between the Bridges is still a, a very much a celebrated album in the canon. By contrast, I love that album cover, too. But, I mean, comparing it from Never from Navy Blues, rather, to Between the Bridges, I mean, Navy Blues, to me, is just, like, so striking and colorful. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, we've had guests on the show who are just like, I got into the band because of the Navy Blues album cover, you know? Um, <laughs> and in, in similarly here, you know, Never Hear the End of It versus Parallel Play from a visual standpoint, Never Hear the End of It is an amazing record, but it's so just visually stimulating as well. It just brings you right in. They look so awesome. They're sitting on the couch there, and uh, the colors are incredible. Um, so, you know, another album cover in that vein or something from one of those German art annuals you know that chris has got might have been maybe a little more appropriate here but anyway whatever that to me because because listening to it musically as we get through all the songs which i'm sure we're about to get into to me the songs are fucking killer like there are some classic tracks on this record for me Mm. that are like top five songs for each of the guys um so i just wanted to kind of throw that out there Yeah, I guess to calibrate how I feel about this album, I'm, I'm probably somewhere between you two. I would not say it's my least favorite Sloan album. It's not 
close to the top <laughs> quite either, but there's a lot that I do love on it. And it's a tough act to follow, right? I mean, album art-wise and musically, coming after near, Never Hear the End of It. That's right. I, I don't know what they could have done to match that or top that. I mean, if they had put out Commonwealth right then, maybe, so that you have the sort of theme to it, you know? But yeah. I think... After just a monumental artistic statement, like never hear the end of it, where you're just kind of emptying out your catalog, basically, like maybe you just need a bit of a a step back, like a little refractory period of sorts. right? I mean, you know, get back to, hey, we're just going to put out a Sloan album and it's going to be catchy and it's going to be competent in every possible way. And you're going to hum along to it and we'll just take two years to make it as opposed to taking longer between albums as they had been a a bit before then. And I suppose since then as well, just, you know, we'll we'll get back to it and maybe the sequencing, you know, it's. It's hard to do the alternate history where what if this album comes out before that album, you know, does it get perceived differently? And I know that not every Sloan fan is as high on Never Hear the End of It as we are collectively, Mm -hmm. but I think it's just – it's acceptable, I think, to – Take a bit of a breather after just the the massive swing that Never Hear the End of It was. And to me, it's almost a middle-aged album in a sense, both in the title, which, you know, is a reference to how Sloan writes songs, but also a reference to raising kids, right, or having kids mm-hmm. together and mm-hmm. playing next to each other, but not really with each other. Mm-hmm. And, you know... The guys had been fathers, some of them at that point. And you have songs like Down in the Basement where Andrew's, you know, mentioning his kids and I'm not a kid anymore, which is explicitly about that from Chris. Right. Or or even in Emergency 911, where Andrew says, you know, I don't think it's any fun to invite 911. Right. It's like, (laughs) you know, settling down. Right. I I want things to be calmer and safer and and more Mm. orderly. And so, in a sense, I, I think it kind of mirrors that, that middle-aged sense. And maybe what you're saying about the album art is, is symbolic of, of all of what we're talking about here, about the, you know, the lack of distinctiveness, maybe, compared to the rest of the catalog. It's, it's funny you say, like, middle-aged, because uh, the album is opened by... <laughs> I love this song. Like, believe in me, I, I, I love this right. song, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's the beginning of Patrick's dad rock era. Like that's, that's for me the, the kickoff of like kind of that bluesy, um, I don't want to say, I don't want to say generic, but, um, you know, it's certainly like, I don't know, uh, believe in me isn't loosens or something, right. It's certainly, it's certainly a little bit more of a, of a reliable rocker. And he literally has his dad playing on that track. I was going to say dad rock. It's it's the literal, it's the literal beginning of the Dick (laughs) Pentland dad rock and Patrick Pentland dad rock era. Um, you know, so he's pulling a plasket there, but, um, the, I think, you know, to, to play the bad cop maybe, um, and answer your question, Rob, what, what is it about parallel play for me, discrepancies in quality of, of songs. There's, there's, like you said, some of my favorite Sloan songs are on here. Cheap champagne. Uh, well, first of all, Jay pulls away from the rest of the band in this album. Like I this was is gonna say, this yeah. is the Jay Ferguson in show. My mind, Jay owns this album. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so he's like his three tracks are incredible. Um, but how you know Andrew Scott's songs, "The Dogs" is one of my favorite Andrew Scott songs. You know, I can understand listening to that for the first time and thinking, oh, 
all right but like the more you listen to it the more incredible it is yeah how can yeah. you have an album with the dogs on it and then the next two songs by andrew are down in the basement and too many like how can that happen and then after like the previous album was never hear the end of it which he owned yeah. and the next album or the next ep was hit and run where he's got get out of bed and uh, where are you now which are two awesome songs too like how does that happen how does the you know and that's the thing that i scratch my head about is that like the second half of parallel play i i would claim sequencing isn't the best i would claim they could have taken some of the stuff from the second half interspersed it with the first half which is for me fantastic uh and then you don't have the, these huge like we talked about this rob um maybe this week is is that too many is like the literal outro song to the album it's like you know roll credits uh chuck willery <laughs> is out shaking hands with contestants you know and they're playing some organ music or something and it's just like it's literally one song too many like that's yeah <laughs> it, yeah it's when you were talking earlier about you know the apprehensiveness when you put on the second side of the white album let's say and you think am i gonna go all the way that's kind of <laughs> how i feel when i get to too many and it's like i'm almost out of this thing i guess i'll be a completionist <laughs> right but <laughs> it's it it's, feels longer than it is because it's not that long a song right but yeah it's it's pretty repetitive i mean intentionally so i i heard you guys talk about traces right which uh i guess you could kind of lump together with down in the basement just as like an andrew dylan-esque song and you know i enjoy this maybe it more than it sounds like you do i what i value about sloan one thing i value about sloan is that they can evoke certain other artists without literally sounding like them exactly or, or kind of copying them Every now and then, they will have a song that just is really almost explicitly produced in the same style. You know, you have mm -hmm. like a a left of center, let's say, which is like, oh, this is a Velvet Underground song, basically. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's going way back, obviously. But no, for sure, that's, yeah. that's kind of – but, you know, I, I don't mind it as an occasional thing. Like, there are a lot of bands who – do that exclusively you know mm -hmm. it's like we sound like those guys or we're gonna make a sound that sounds like the beach boys or we sound like the kinks or whatever and you can kind of tell that they're consciously doing that whereas with sloan you might pick up a little reference here or there but it's more just like the ethos of those bands or they're kind of capturing the brilliance of those bands without really replicating their sound whereas down in the basement is maybe more of an explicit ode to like dylan and the band kind of basement tapes type mm -hmm. era yeah. it it works for me more than it sounds like it works for you i think just because maybe stylistically sonically it's it's different from everything else on the yeah. album it's a little less produced it's it's less formal it's like hey we're just you know gonna start playing here which is kind of the theme of the song and so mm -hmm. i don't mind it breaking up the rest of it but i am with you on uh some variability in quality there and, and also too many being a bit plotting maybe for an album ender well the, and the thing is is it's for i i really racked my brain this week about what is it that makes me uh, like not like the second half of this album as much as as i should or could yeah. or whatever and for me it's like anybody can write a dylan song you know, anybody can do Dylan. Nobody can do Andrew Scott. Nobody can write an Andrew Scott song. I can't go out there and just say, fuck it. I'm going to go write, 
you know, in the movie, it's just, I can't do that. You know, nobody can do that. And so you don't have them playing their strongest cards. And that's what I find so disappointing about Andrew's like Dylan quote unquote, he's got three songs that I guess are sort of Dylan-ish three or four is that like, man, like you're, you're the best drummer, the best guitarist and the best, you know, the coolest singer. Uh, and you know, here you're talking about 40 tracks and this and that. And it's like, it just sounds, it sounds, <laughs> was that sort of a camp caribou uh, version of, uh, <laughs> sorry, but, um, it, uh, it just sounds generic. Right. And that's the, that's the thing is it like, there's a bit of a genericism to the, to the content in this, even too many, like you don't reference the year in which a song was recorded in a rock song. Only hip, only hip hop can do that. You don't say it's the year 2008. Cause yeah, I was, or if you're Prince, like, if you're Prince, yeah. it's okay. Yeah, sure. It's such a, it's a small nitpick, but yeah. <laughs> I, I don't like, and you know how, you know, everyone always says a slow song sound timeless and you can't tell what decade they were recorded. Well, that's and everything. the thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Whenever Andrew says it's the year 2008, I'm like, no, it's not. It's 2022. <laughs> and I know he needs the rhyme but it takes me out of the song for a second <laughs> so i'm with you there so funny it's funny because like we, I mean, we can get into the andrew stuff too because i want to kind of go back to the top of the album kind of maybe we can chronologically just hit every song because i definitely have thoughts about down in the basement as well but you know we, we've talked about andrew's you know writing style and i think for him he has you know we, we see him in the uh, keeping the tour alive dvd you know, just on his guitar the whole time. This is like that period between Pretty Together and Never Hit the End of It where he's not on Action Packed as a writer and he says that he's got songs coming out of his ass, like just pieces, you know. And um, so, you know, I think there are songs where you they feel maybe a little more fleshed out, you know, something from Never Hit the End of It, like I've Got to Try, or on this one, The Dogs, where it's like something that might have started off as a jam or as like an experiment, and you can feel the amount of time that was put into The Dogs. Like it's just, you know, the vocal layering and stuff, uh, yeah. you know, and maybe the with The Dogs feels like proto 48 portraits to me. It's for like, sure. for yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm going to do a, an 18 minute version of this and it will have dogs barking on it instead of being named the dogs. But yeah. sort of a warm up act for that song in my mind. He's really opening up his 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 life to us in a way on this record too i mean he does that a bit on the uh, never hear the end of it too i mean and when, when we interviewed andrew he sort of was very not standoffish but he was very uh coy perhaps about you know oh the songs are about nothing i mean down in the basement is literally his day-to-day -day. it's his life <laughs> it's what he's doing it's the band you know it's a, it's a picture of exactly what was happening at the time so um and, and for me i really like the lyrics to down in the basement for that reason. And when I was listening to it today, I halfway through, I was like, Oh yeah, this is kind of a Dylan song. You know, um, I was so hyper-focused on the lyrics and then just enjoying him talking so candidly about himself and what's going on. Uh, and then with too many, I think that one's where it's a song where it's, it's a jam that maybe could have been refined a bit more into something. And, it kind of just got cut off or something, you know, I don't want to say like effort wasn't put in. I'm sure it was, but it just feels maybe not as, um, poured over as songs like the dogs or you mentioned 48 portraits something that obviously would have taken a lot of time and had a lot of effort put into it but anyway blah 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 if if i could yeah. I, I was going to say just on please. that point because I, I remember that yep rock sent out emails at the time it was like uh you know in, in some albums they've done like little video breakdowns of how i wrote this song i, I think yep rock did email versions of mm -hmm. that and i don't 
have them still or I couldn't dig them up, but one of them is online, the Andrew one, where he explains how he wrote these songs. And, you know, he talked about how he wrote too many and he's just listening to a, a ton of like reggae and rocksteady and dub music and ska go. at the time. And, you know, he's obviously trying to emulate that. But it's interesting at the end, he says, the only thing I regret is not putting horns and sax on it, <laughs> which if he had done that, I don't know, maybe that's what you're saying. Like maybe it needed another layer or another level to it. He says, I wanted it to be repetitive and kind of hypnotic, but tuneful as well. And it's definitely at least one of those things. It is. Um, and it but... definitely feels like a lot of fun too. Like, I mean, I hear Chris yeah. playing drums on that one, by the way. Like I know Andrew's songs mm. are typically all him. Uh, that really sounds like Murph playing drums to me. And, and, and there's a sort of like real fun bounciness to the whole song, you know, like I think, yeah, yeah. It, I wouldn't say like, oh, this doesn't sound like a Sloan song or anything. I, I love when they sound different. You know, that's one of the strengths of the band is that you never know what they'll sound like from album to album or, or sound to sound. You can always or song to song. You can always tell it's Sloan, but it's Sloan doing something different. So a Sloan reggae song. Sure. You know, in theory, yeah. and, <laughs> I'm on board, but and, in execution. And respect to Andrew, too, man, for like putting it out there, you know, like throwing mm -hmm. a dart off into the air and like and trying something outside of maybe his wheelhouse or outside of the comfort zone of the band or whatever you know like yeah. if anybody's going to do it uh, I mean he's going to definitely push and Patrick's going to definitely push the edges of like sort of what you would expect I guess musically mm -hmm. um, but anyway mm, if, yeah. if you guys and, sorry go uh, ahead please well, well, one more thing about what you were saying about down in the basement and the lyrics and just describing this mundane scene sort of. I also admire that, you know, just the fact that it's now I'm raising up a ballet boy and a hockey girl and a wife that I really love. I mean, that's not your typical rock music no. lyrics necessarily. It's not like, you know, angry young man rebelling against something or partying hard. I mean, this album, that's kind of what I was saying about being a middle-aged album. It's yeah. like you know, accepting where you are in your life and being happy, right? I mean, it's almost he, a celebration need to be a rock star. Yeah, yeah it is. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it's the it's the complete opposite of his former early twenties self with you know People of the Sky, where he's lamenting this relationship gone afoul, and right. um, you know he, here he is on the other side of you know like almost what is it twenty years later or whatever, and he is you know, successful relationship. He's raising up his kids and he's, you know, he's, in, he's got his band. It's this, is our space. We can do whatever we want. Like he's in a pretty mm -hmm. good fucking spot, you know? And, and, and Andrew in a way is kind of in this album, really sort of taking the Chris tone of, you know, am I relevant anymore? What am I doing with my life? Um, yeah. you know, Andrew's kind well, of touching Chris on those takes topics. that tone too. But. He does that too. <laughs> yeah. And he'll usually do that, which is when I love it. Yes. But, uh, mm -hmm. anyway, to kind of quickly go back to believe in me and maybe we can kind of just quickly pop through each song. Uh, and, uh, and then we can jump around a little bit if you'd like, whatever you'd like to do. But uh, I wanted to mention that for me, Believe in Me, it kind of feels like a brother song to Iggy and Angus. And where that one is a little more, you know, up-tempo and mm. a little more raucous and stuff, to me, like, I love a swing beat Patrick song, and I love the guitar tone in this song. Um, I talked about it on a previous episode that, like, as soon as you hear that backwards guitar in the intro, it's just like, whoa, this is different. Like, this is in a completely different place, you know? Like, this is totally different from what we've heard on any other album from Sloan. Uh, you mentioned earlier, uh, Ken, uh, it is, it is in fact, Patrick's dad on the keys throughout this entire song, which is totally cool. Uh, his dad was a, you know, working musician for years and years, and Patrick had, had spoken about in our interview with him, you know, it, 
admiring as a kid the way his dad would dress you know with like a nice black shirt with a vest and you recall like i my mind immediately goes to the patrick of the double cross tour uh where he was wearing kind of like a uniform you know like a sometimes a green mm. button-up shirt with a black vest and like p- kind of paying a tribute to his dad and you know i kind of paired those two things in my head just today so i thought that was really cool and it's nice to hear that his dad's on there i want to also say that a big thanks to greg gregory mcdonald our man on the inside uh, who's been on the show and obviously been an amazing contributor for the second half of the band's career um like a like a he's the guy and uh he helped me with a few notes on this so i'll be peppering some little thoughts from greg throughout but um yeah i think uh, uh greg is making his first vocal appearance on this song with those ah stack harmonies and um and and, and patrick and, he, and, he, and greg also as as we, as he mentioned on his episode he does his famous high c which was one of those uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Ken, just like a, for a vocalist anyway, just like a really tough note to hit mm. for a male vocalist. Uh, and and uh, Greg does it towards the end of the song. Uh, Without going falsetto, yeah. Yeah, and they had been s- singing the vocals here while the album was being mixed. So this is one of those songs that was really last uh, to cross the finish line. Um, but anyway, yeah, getting to the vocals real quick, like my other uh, note on this song, you know, we've talked about Patrick in the past having sort of lyrics that are kind of for everybody, you know, a little broad kind of, if you will. And I really like, you know, everyone is weak and everyone can be strong, you know, like he's just kind of keeping it simple. You know, you see the good in everyone and it's, he's got these lyrics that are just very relatable and Patrick kind of with his ability to sort of speak to everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love a good Patrick album opener, <laughs> you know, just a song, a good in everyone, if if it feels good, do it, that can just kick off an album, high energy, could probably kick off a concert as well. And, and it you did, know, actually, as you said, yeah. sir, it did, right. And, you know, just that instantly recognizable, you know, you strum those first couple chords, it's like, you know what song this is, right? And you've got that great guitar tone, and then you have like a few different guitar type tones and sounds and phasers or whatever in just the first few seconds there and it's like he's pulling out all the the effects and everything and so i love just that kind of clean crisp tone that he has there at the beginning and then of course that bluesy organ but there's just you know as you said sort of the universal almost simplistic but like easy to identify with lyrics kind of like an unkind maybe where you can Mm -hmm. just you know, you just instantly know the refrain and can sing along with that song basically the first time you hear it. And I want to say also, uh, Greg mentioned that they had been um, mixing the album at Orange Lounge on Queen Street in mm. uh, Toronto, which later became the Tattoo Rock Parlor for people who were kind of here in 2022. Um, and I remember seeing the release show at that same venue. And it's funny, I, I almost think, I don't know that, the, because it sounds like the band were mixing and still recording and then it, and then doing sort of like the release in this same physical space. Uh so I don't know if it's a Kanye situation where he's living in Mercedes-Benz Arena while working on Donda for Sloan, but uh, um, kind of cool that all of this stuff kind of happens in this one sort of contained place. Um, but anyway, I just wanted to make that note. Yeah, um, it's for me, believe in me, is one is one in a, a very productive and fruitful series of uh Patrick Pentland's summer jams. Like this is the summer jam of, isn't it? Like I, it, it was literally released in the summer and it was the first thing I heard from the album. But sure. it, like, if you go back to one chord to another, he, like they're all summer jams, like good and everyone, 
uh, Money City Maniacs losing California. Mm. If it feels good, if it feels good, do it wasn't in the summer, was it? It was that would have been the winter. That would so have been we'll, the fall, we'll, yeah. Fall winter. Uh, so we'll leave that. Um, and that whole album but, is a uh, colder album. That for me is a winter album. But anyway, whatever. Right, for sure, <laughs> for sure. But like those are those are the classic summer jams. And then he's, he's got his first, you know, like true summer single since losing California. Um, well, I guess losing California was November. Fuck. Damn it. <laughs> but it feels like it feels like it might be a summer jam, right? Sure. Um, it just for me, believe in me is uh is 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 sort of a concert staple and and the thing that uh I would want to be hearing uh you know on on the four oh one or something at three in the morning to to stay awake. That's the mm-hmm. that's the the song I'm listening to. Yeah, it's funny when I was preparing for this pod and I was listening to the album a bunch, my wife heard me <laughs> listening and she kind of walked up behind me and she looked at the track list and she said, not a lot of bangers on this one, huh? <laughs> Which was harsh, maybe fair, but if you were going to elevate anything to, to banger status, I mean, I'm not saying that Believe in Me is the best song on the album, but it is the one that really gets you going, you know, That's right. and it just, it amps you up. I mean, no one does that as well as patrick can i love the transition to cheap champagne that's mm. one of my favorite transi- transitions in the catalog because they're just two completely yeah. polar opposite songs that they managed to kind of get on the same beat to to, mm-hmm. to bump into each other they both have a swing yeah for sure that's true that's true that's true that's a good point but uh cheap champagne being uh probably uh i think one of the most creative jay ferguson songs like where do you classify this you know in some cases it's easy to notice what jay ferguson's uh, inspirations for a song where I think it's becoming more complicated over the course of his career because he has such a nuanced taste. Uh, but this is one of the songs where I think to myself, like only Jay could write this, you know, and there's the, I don't know if you guys recall, it might be the same video series that you're t- talking about, Ben. Uh, and I think it's been, it's also since been uh, relegated to the realm of internet archive or whatever. But um, <laughs> there was a video series released in conjunction with the album in which they talk about each song. And Cheap Champagne was, I think, a drawing that Chris made of just like a, like a little stick figure with a top hat doing some like <laughs> vaudeville moves. Um, and uh, and that's that's what for me, Cheap Champagne has that kind of like like that olden days flair almost. It feels very it feels very like it, it could be describing sort of a, a movie in, you know, like a 60s, a 60s kind of smoky romance or something i don't know it's yeah. uh, it's a fantastic track and the the thing about cheap champagne for me is uh is the is the is the minor chord progression with the major chord finish and that flourishing major chord like that that panned piano sound uh that chorus piano sound uh it just it's it's such a great like that's the icing on the cake for me for cheap champagne. And it it might be my favorite song on the album. It's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, this is almost Jay's your mother should know in a way like, and whereas the Beatles with that song, were trying to sound like the forties. Jay sounds like modern day Jay here, you know, like he, he he sounds like he's of his time. And um, yeah, it's such, it's such a fantastic song. Uh, The intro that you mentioned is actually Greg's first appearance on a Sloan album. He's playing the piano and and the piano that they bought, uh, it was a shitty apartment sized console piano that they got off Craigslist for $400. And apparently it was a giant piece of shit, but uh, it makes, it sounds amazing and it makes appearances all over the album. So very cool. 
Yeah, it's when people make that comparison and say that parallel play is like a compressed never hear the end of it, maybe one thing they're referring to is the linkages between songs, right? Which is mm-hmm. not unique to never hear. I mean, you have some of that on between the bridges. It's it's not necessarily a new thing, but they do do it a fair amount on this album and in pretty clever ways. So whether that's because they were happy with how it worked out on Never Hear the End of It and they said this album is, you know, fewer than half as many tracks, but we still like this little trick that we've learned. But that does kind of link them together in my mind, I think. And you guys have talked about how Jay seems to have this knack for just really fully fleshing out particularly female characters and and protagonists in his songs with these just very evocative lines. And this is another one in that lineage, right? I mean, he's just really bringing someone to life here. And and the jukebox predicted her song. I mean, there are all these little lines that (laughs) you just get a sense of who this person is and he does it so economically. So I'm totally with you on Jay just sort of stealing this album and this song being maybe the best example of that. And I'm kind of – I'm just a Jay guy in general. <laughs> not that I'm not a Chris guy or a Patrick guy or an Andrew guy. We're all all of them, of course. And it's almost, you know, your mind rebels at the idea of elevating one over the others because <laughs> you don't want to say that someone is lesser in some way. So mm. each has their wonderful strengths and uh, each is indispensable and makes on what it is, et cetera. Insert standard caveats <laughs> there. But I think in my mind, like – if I had to just rate the songwriters, Jay would probably be at the top of my list at this point, and he has probably climbed that list over time. And, you know, you guys have talked about just how he has matured as a songwriter, become so much more polished and more prolific. Of course, he's not as much of a presence on the early albums. Although, you know, even going back to like Lemon Zinger or something on Smeared, Mm -hmm. you know, people don't talk about that song that much, but that song is beautiful. (laughs) I think like especially just, you know, kind of the, the high part where it's just his voice and, you know, like a little finger picked kind of guitar line under it yeah. like that part just always like I stop whatever I'm doing to listen to that moment so I think he had that in him even then but he has just developed his songwriting skill so much over the years and I guess you could say that maybe the types of songs that he writes varies you know vary a little less than than others in the band you know if you compare him to like Andrew or something where you just never know what you're going to get with Jay. And I think there are some consistencies with his three songs on this album, right? Like they all sound like Jay Ferguson songs in a special way that sets him apart from everyone else in the band. And partly that's vocal too, I think, in that he probably has the most distinctive Mm -hmm. voice. And it's just like this high, sweet, delicate, like uh, the peal of a bell or something. It's not your typical rock voice. And it's so distinctive that that helps him stand out to me too as well. So it's not that the other guys in Sloan don't reach the same highs routinely that he does. I think it's maybe just that I find him to be more consistent or dependable like the lows for jay at least in recent years have not been as low as the lows for others which again when i say low i'm saying relative to their own wonderful work not relative to like (laughs) other bands you know they're all amazing but 
I think, you know, you're not going to have an album really where you say the things about Jay songs that we were saying about Andrew's songs on this album, right? Mm-hmm. And and Andrew's brilliant. And Andrew at his best is maybe the best, you know, certainly as good as anyone. But there is a little bit of a variability there. Whereas with Jay, I feel like, you know, no matter what the conceit of the album is or the sound of the album, Jay is just going to deliver. Like even mm-hmm. Action Packed, which to me, like doesn't really suit the sound of Jay Ferguson. But even so, I think his tracks on that album are maybe my favorite tracks on oh, that album. False which, Alarm? Like, Jesus. False yeah. Alarm and Fade Away. Like, yeah. uh, those are, I think, two of the most underrated Sloan songs. And let's, so, put, like, let's pack Step on a Gene into that category, yeah, too, sure. which yeah, might sure. be my favorite Jay Ferguson song. Yeah. So just had to do a general <laughs> Jay appreciation because this is the album and the episode to do that, I think. And just... One quick side note. I don't know whether you guys have ever suggested this, but my pet dream project as like a a side project for Sloan would be to re-record Smeared to sound Mm -hmm. like contemporary Sloan, which – like, you know, a four night, like a Four Nights ever... at the Palais Royale sounding version. Yeah, yeah, I don't know that they would ever want to do that. And, you know, maybe they don't want to look backward that way. Although, obviously, with the box sets and everything, they're happy to revisit their catalog. Mm-hmm. But often, you know, when an artist does that, like re-records their early work, sometimes it's a sign that they're like out of inspiration, you know, mm-hmm. and you end up with like a, a give my regards to Broad Street type thing <laughs> that, that McCartney did where it's like, well, this is uh, inferior versions of, of classic songs like what is this doing for me but with smeared because it sounds so different from everything else in the song catalog which is good like it's a product of its time and and you know i love that it stands out in some ways too but i'd also be so curious to hear what the modern sloan would make of that album and those songs you know a cool compromise would be like i mean i don't know how possible this is going to be because with the box sets and the reissues they generally do a tour where they play the yeah. album in its entirety. Now, I don't know what's next, if we're going to get a smeared box set or a BTB box set, you know, here in March 2022. Don't know. But, um, you know, it's hard to imagine them doing, like, smeared all the way through. Like, I don't know why that, like, you know, after 30 years. Um, and I know there may be some influences within the band who maybe aren't as interested to tour that, you know, as a, as a show opener necessarily. But what would be cool is if they did something like the sort of uh, side door access shows that they've been doing where maybe it's the guys in the space or them at various venues, you know, doing the song contemporarily simple, similar to the way that they did on four nights. Cause four nights of the Palais yeah. Royale is a great, uh, you know, visual or audio aid for a more contemporary Sloan playing those kind of classic songs in that style. So, you know, it'd be really cool to maybe get like, uh, now obviously this likely won't happen, but, you know, today's Sloan playing those songs, you know, right. in video form, and then that maybe being released as some sort of special edition live vinyl, like smeared live in, you know, 30 years on. That might be mm-hmm. kind of cool, but uh, anyway. Yeah, and <laughs> you have to be faithful recreations with like less fuzz i mean you know that was more than half their lives ago like they're different people different songwriters maybe they put a different spin on some of those songs maybe they change them up a little so you know i'm not saying only the production would have to change but i'd be really interested in not just a re 
recording, but a reinterpretation of what kind of the classic Sloan sound mm-hmm. would sound like with those songs. Because I, I think, you know, buried under that contemporary production, which, again, I still very much enjoy. And, you know, that's uh, that's what they were at that time. And I wouldn't want to do away with it. But I'd just be curious to hear what it would sound like now. We've heard evidence, evidences of it over the years, like, you know, like uh, I Am the Cancer on the Party album and, of course, Four Nights, like I said. Uh, and they and obviously still play these songs, some of them, you know, live to, to this day, 500 Up and stuff. And I'm the yeah. Cancer Underwhelm and whatnot. So, yeah, that's a really interesting thought, man. It'd be it'd be cool to hear for sure. Yep. From my mouth to Sloan's ears. <laughs> and another interesting thing about the difference, or the sort of the comparisons rather from Never Hear the End of It to Parallel Play, in both cases you have a J-Song second that is a swinging stomper. Mm-hmm. Okay. With piano. Yeah. Um, although, is there a J-Song in the second half of the catalog without a piano in it? Maybe. Um, <laughs> and this is going to be a, this is going to be a three hour, three parter if we don't get through this album. Here. So <laughs> let's say, get going. It's going to say, uh, all I am is all you're not. Um, the thing that struck me on this song, the first time listening to it is the way in which Chris's voice has been mic'd and engineered. And, mm. and I, I think you get this across the songs on the album. It sounds a lot drier and a lot, I guess dryer is the correct production term to use than than never hear the end of it. Uh and it certainly adds a more mature quality to um to uh to his songs. Uh I think that this is also the one that's kind of the the most influenced by Andrew on the album. Like Chris always sure. has Andrew, you know, the, the cameo on his on his works yeah. uh to do lead guitar or riffs in the background and you know i would be damned if that isn't andrew uh doing lead guitar uh throughout the song and that's yeah. the thing that also kind of marks the song for me and that ties it to other stuff in the catalog too i love it when you know people think uh people think they know me is a great example or something from never heard the end of it where you have that riff going on in the background the whole time and it's kind of andrew's um, I'm not sure if it's a Dorian scale. I think that's a Dorian scale, but um, you know he's he's doing stuff that doesn't sound akin to anything that anybody else in the band is doing, and so it kind of adds that that edge behind behind Chris's sort of sweet sweet vocals. But I think this is the this is maybe the most enigmatic of the songs on the album for me, if that makes sense. It's Chris is usually wearing his heart on his sleeve to quote his, his 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 lyrics but he's very upfront with what he's singing about and obviously with with a little gleam in the eye at the same time and a wink and uh this is the one where i think it's like there's some puns in here but it's really kind of like it's coming from a different place you know yeah, I mean, uh, for me, like you guys have been talking about Jay and Ben mentioning this is a Jay album. Like, I'm a Chris guy through and through, and I love all the guys equally for sure. But, um, you know, I've I kind of always, especially over the past 20 years, sort of edged more toward Chris. But um, for me, this is a bit of this. Is, I'm going to make the case that this is a Chris album. And this song is great evidence of that. I love, um, first of all, funny, just a little fun fact. This was originally called Love This Town, I think, perhaps with different lyrics. Uh, but that was the original title. Um, and uh, I love the sort of herky-jerky drums in the verse. Uh, that kind of they're just not playing sort of straight four four. It's like ding, at, at, and, and, at, uh. and it, it's sort of inter- it's it's kind of weird to hear at first, but it really allows the chorus to kind of drive a little more. And I imagine that if the verses had sort of just a similarly driving beat, it would kind of the song would kind of sort of lose something because when it hits that chorus, and the chorus here is I mean 
mean, this is for me one of the top Chris songs. It's so fantastic and so catchy. It's just such a, a, a driving feeling. And um, the acoustic here, uh, recorded into a cheap handheld tape recorder, similar uh, to uh, Not a Kid Anymore, which we'll hear later. Uh, and I think this was inspired by Street Fighting Man. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, really a top Chris song. And like you mentioned, Ken, we're hearing piano flourishes from Andrew here. We're hearing guitar stings from Andrew. Um, you know, I feel like it's sort of akin in a way to the sort of end of Abbey Road you know, 400 meters vibe, you know, I, I don't know, again, I'm not a guitar guy, so I don't know what kind of what scale he's existing in, but that's sort of where my mind goes. But, and another thing too, just in terms of the production, this one's to me feels a whole lot like a sort of one chord production. There aren't a lot, there, yeah, there really aren't any, there's mm-hmm. no hi hats, there's no cymbals. Um, and, and that's very indicative of one chord where it's just like, you know, bass and drums, there's some clicking going on. And then in the chorus, mm-hmm. it's just like, I'm a huge fan of no cymbals, kick, snare and a shaker you know just keep it keep it bare and uh yeah big fan of that sound on the subject of whose album this is which i know is sort of a silly debate because (laughs) it's all of their albums yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) but (laughs) you guys remember that time that jay ranked all of sloan's albums for for vice i think yeah it was for vice uh this was back in 2015 and they had him just rank them in in order of how much he liked them or was satisfied with them and he had action-packed and pretty together at the bottom at the time. But then he had Parallel Play after that. And this was, you know, when Parallel Play was not brand new, but not old either. And his feelings about it, he he sort of sums it up. And it's almost as if, as if reading between the lines, he thinks it's sort of a Jay album because <laughs> he says, uh, overall, I think we've made better records. But on that record, I was really happy with my own songs. <laughs> <I feel, laughs> he's being very diplomatic. I feel bad putting it low on the list. But I think if I take it in the context of the whole band, I think we've made better records than that. There are just a few things that knock it down a bit for me. He's not naming any names. <laughs> He's not naming any songs or anything. But again, like his closing line was, uh, it falls into that category where I don't know if I love the album as much as our other records, but I really like the songs I contributed. I think it just falls down the list as a result of the quality. So hmm. reading between the lines, I guess there are maybe some non-J songs that he was not, at least at the time, thrilled with. And I guess that's kind of where <laughs> I am or, or where Ken is also. Hmm. Sure. Yeah, yeah for that's sure. Fair. That's great. No, I'm so glad it's... you found that. That's, that's such a great tip. <laughs> Not to, to put Jay on the spot here for uh, for kind of criticizing his bandmates in a very polite and respectful and oblique way. But <laughs> well, I'm, def- I'm definitely going to. Sorry, go ahead, Ken. I was just going to say, if we're going to stick to this topic for a second, the one thing that doesn't make this a Chris album for me, uh, and I mentioned that earlier, is almost the somewhat generic nature of songs like I'm Not a Kid Anymore, which I feel as though, frankly, could have been written by anybody. You know, it's not Chris sticking to his guns. There there are great puns in there. Um, there's some great, you know, double entendres, the anagram alones, and literally an anagram of Sloan. Um, there's some fun moments on there, but it doesn't have the same character as the stuff before and after it and never hear the end of it and hit and run. So, um, you know, it's I'm spoiled as hell for being able to enjoy this band's catalog in the breadth that it has, right? 
I was just going to add, this is the first of the Greg vocal stack bridges. Uh, this is not something that would occur a lot more that he, when he was recording with the band, but all I am is or not is, you know, that, uh, you know, that's a, a Greg vocal stack there. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I think then again, we, we always talk about Chris being a sort of musical bridge. Uh, the first two songs, you know, believe in me and cheap champagne for me, because they're both sort of swinging rock songs. They kind of live together and they would feel really awkward bumping up against the next song. Um, but Chris is that sort of midpoint with all I am, uh, that allows those two first songs to exist, exist next to emergency 911. Right. Which, yeah. which has all of the sentiment, that you're getting uh in living with the masses mm-hmm. but kind of honed down a little bit and that, that's what i think is like the spontaneity that exists in living with the masses where i feel as though andrew is actually going off the hook and he could punch this guy in the face like if he keeps <laughs> you know you know doing doing his thing in, in his garage um I feel as though emergency 911, and I love the idea behind it. And it was a comment, you know, I think that it's based on a comment that his son made uh, when he was in it, doing his playtime that like all this noise was happening on the street and like, I don't want this to happen. Stop that. Um, you know, I, 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 I love the idea behind it. Um, it again feels muted a little bit. Like it feels like it's a little bit more of a tame version to, to living with the masses. But I must say, this is a song that absolutely kills live Mm. like this is a this is this is the song that was probably designed to have that that same uh have that same show like momentum changing quality that living with the masses and hfx and shc had uh for parallel play Mm -hmm. totally yeah i do identify with the sentiment (laughs) andrew's just inner cranky get off my lawn (laughs) like as someone who who grew up in new york city and has been subjected to loud noises my whole life and living in apartment buildings with noisy neighbors constantly Mm -hmm. i i feel (laughs) what andrew is feeling in these songs but yeah i do see it as sort of a, a companion piece like you know this is another case where like maybe if this were coming at some other point in the catalog where never here was not so recent and living with the masses was not so recent you know this feels like well we've heard a version of this song very recently but but i still enjoy it it's just you know a little lesser it's just a a quickie you know just change the change the mood change the sound and uh transition to another patrick song and before we do, uh, I want to say this: these drums on nine on nine one one really feel like Chris to me. Again, I know that Andrew traditionally does all those songs, or recording all of his own songs himself. But again, I don't know if it's just because I'm used to seeing Chris perform it live, but it really feels like him. Uh, can't confirm, but I can confirm the fast clapping in the spoken section is Chris, Greg, and Andrew. Um, and Andrew has had songs previously where there's sort of spoken sections, like Before I Do has that sort of like side channel outro. Um, trying to think of another example, but for sure he's doing it. And I, and I love this little part where he's like so frantic and just, and it's a great moment live too, where he steps to the mic, no guitar, and just sort of says this, his piece, you know, kind of just like puts it out there and he's like very authoritative yeah. and it just, it's drenched in sweat by that point. Totally. Probably. Yeah. He's like <laughs> totally drenched. And, uh, it, it reminds me, these are not the same sort of vibes or the same, you know, feeling, 
But uh, for some reason, the other th- sort of classic example of this is like the Blues Brothers. When in the movie, when they're doing Everybody Needs Somebody and Elwood grabs the mic and he's just like, you know, if you're out there, you know, so you can love somebody, we well, got to hold that guy, hold that girl. <laughs> he's like talking to the audience and like sort of shouting at them before they get back into the chorus again. And I know this is probably not the reference in the slightest, but that's another just for me thing that, uh, you know, I love that movie. I love that, those songs live. Uh, and I love that uh, moment I've, I've we've definitely heard it and seen it throughout music history uh and andrew's doing it here and i love that he's the one doing it and uh i love his energy in this song for sure <laughs> yeah it's just fed up just gonna get up there and rant for two minutes <laughs> yeah he's good at it <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. and that song slams right into burn for it as you said yeah and for me, we when we talked about Patrick, I mentioned it, and I've mentioned it on the show too, especially during the Sloan Cast 30 stuff. This is a top Patrick song for me. Uh, and I remember that uh, Orange Lounge release show that I mentioned earlier that I was lucky enough to attend. This was like the real standout song of that show. Like I remember the performance of it was, was crazy. Um, and such a contrast in terms of the song itself, how it begins to where, to where it goes. Um, it's got this real awesome vibe at the beginning Patrick singing with himself which we've joked on the show about his voice with itself is almost because his voice is so great it's almost like too perfect sounding um, but he's sort of octave singing and I just love the way that sounds and then obviously as this song progresses it just goes into the atmosphere and I remember that big outro uh, you know, walk when Patrick's you know saying about wanting to walk through the fire. I'm like, yeah, man, I'm right with you. I'm gonna fucking walk through the fire too, man. But uh, yeah, fantastic song. Love it. Love the stacking, the layering of the guitars and the different guitar parts. He's given a shout out to the loud, proud volume freaks out there, which I think he's also doing on his fuzzed out project. Um, but yeah, I just love it. I, this song for me is like top Patrick. Yeah, I'm with you too. It's. Uh... I don't know whether I enjoy this more or believe in me more live. I mean, they both kind of (laughs) kill. So it's almost like I associate them with each other in my mind because they're close together on the same album and, you know, similar length. But I love this song, too. I don't know if I'd put it higher or lower than believe in me or or where it would rank in my Patrick catalog. But I, I enjoy it a lot, too. So in transitioning into, uh, uh, we hear, and I don't want to, does anybody want to do the voice? Which is one. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who's saying that or whatever, but I love it. Uh, I, I want to mention here the drum intro. Uh, Greg had mentioned that this was actually lifted from a Jay Arner song that he and Jay had worked on uh, in high school. And Jay Ferguson had heard it and just loved the sort of like little tight drum intro. So he borrowed it and here it is. Um, and as we see, and this is this is here's why this is a triple J song. As we see in the uh, liners, there's a, a tip of the hat to Jason for the D minor in the outro, and that's of course Jason Schwartzman uh, of you know IMDb fame and Phantom Planet and so on. Uh, and uh, yeah, so this is a triple J. We've got uh, Jay Arner at the beginning. It's a Jay Ferguson song, and Jason Schwartzman with the D minor at the end. Now you'll have to help me out, Ken, where what he's referring to in terms of D minor. I mean, there, there's going to be a D minor in that chord progression, but does he mean that he's that Jason Jason I can't say that name Jason Schwartzman is playing like did he introduce that into the chord progression as a suggestion for for Jay or was that that's, like that's the impression is he playing that I get. the guitar? Or is, no, I think he just had okay. the suggestion. Yeah, right. Because it does it does change up there. The progression does. Right. Um, it's which is one for me is is, is sort of 
obviously inextricably linked to the video like it, i know the video came out afterwards uh probably in 2009 beginning in 2009 mm-hmm. uh great video uh by scott cudmore who's done some really cool uh music videos totally and um first of all i i might be i might have dreamt this i recall there being an ad for extras to go do that video and i think it was shot in the Ottawa Valley. I think that it was shot somewhere up near Renfrew. I might be dreaming this. Like this could serious. I might. I have a terrible memory, hmm. uh, and I just I remember kicking myself that I'd moved to Halifax about a year and a half earlier. Um, because if there's anything that I wanted to have done, it, it's you know being a Sloan music video, as many people who have been on this podcast have. Hmm. Um, but uh, it's it stands out for me of all of the Sloan music videos because it's not them. I mean, there are cameo appearances behind masks and such, but um, it's it's actors. You know, it's it's a music video that's a film basically, um, and it uh, it's I can't not think of like a wintry Ottawa Valley landscape when I listen to Which Is One now. You know, so, yeah, it's yeah. Uh, yeah. It's I'm not sure really, if there's... <laughs> yeah, it's so cinematic and artsy in a way that yeah. Sloan videos <laughs> typically yeah. are not. I mean, usually you'd expect it would just be like Sloan playing Witches One, you know, yeah. <laughs> maybe like looking sort of 60s or something, but yeah. it's not that at all. So, yeah. yeah, it's a total outlier, really. I wonder if Scott Cudmore is maybe an Ottawa guy and that's how that came together. Like they were in the area anyway on tour and that sort of worked out. Um not sure. But uh, yeah, I mean, to kind of go through the video really quickly, the lead female cult member is, of course, uh, Chris's better half, Rebecca, and her mm-hmm. sister, Jamie, is the sort of female youth lead. Um, and it, interesting. I mean, it's it's, it's, it's kind of crazy. Like, Andrew is sort of the cult leader with the mask. I don't know if that's like a goat head or, or what, that skull. I, I want to say that I've seen it in his studio, like when he shows videos and pictures of his studio. I swear I've seen it hanging up in there. Um, but, uh, yeah, there's all this sort of, they're, they're clearly like a, it's some sort of cult or something. And, um, they're being, I don't know if the girls are being indoctrinated or something through kid, through this kiss <laughs> that's going on. And then Andrew comes out to sort of do the big initiation. And of course, here comes Chris and Jay and Patrick as like a sort of like news team who are like breaking onto the scene to kind of like, what the hell is this? And it's got like a sort of Alex Jones, that Bohemian Grove kind of thing going on. Very silly. And it's so funny to see Patrick. Patrick and Jay following Chris with his mic and they've got the boom and the camera and stuff. It's, and you, you see Jay corpsing the whole time. He's just loving it. Um, so yeah, such a cool, inventive, creative video for an amazing song. Yeah. Yeah. The song is just, I mean, it's like a perfect pop song. It just, it goes down so easy. It's just like instantly memorable and catchy. It's another song that like you'll be singing along by the time the song is over, even if it's the first time you've heard it. And yet it also has that aspect of like semi-mystical occult kind of fantasy element to it, Mm -hmm. which makes it more memorable than if this were just sort of a standard, you know, sappy sort of love song to go along with the very sweet melody. And so I don't know that I completely follow the narrative of the song or the video, but just the fact that it has that air to it, I think only enhances, you know, I don't know that the imagery matches the music really. Mm. And the fact that they're almost discordant in my mind is more of a feature than a bug for me you know it just it makes it less kind of you know this is just another disposable pop song that's kind of catchy it also Mm. has this 
strange air to it that you don't typically hear in a song song or, or any song of this sort. Yeah. I mean, we, we've discussed this song at length and as well as the next song on the song cast 30, but I will say this, it's the sister song to um, Cheap Champagne, right? I mean, it's musically taking a lot of the same cues. Um, I think the production is is quite uh, is quite similar to, to what we're hearing in Cheap Champagne. And it's, for, for me, also something that maybe t- sets a departure from what Jay was doing in Never Hear the End of It, where we hear him going into a number of different styles. And I'm thinking, like, at the end of the race has very little similar with Witch's Wand, um, or before the end of the race, sorry. Uh, whereas uh, it might have a lot more in common with what's happening on on Double Cross, for example. Um, I feel as though that you know the shimmering the shimmering guitar sounds that he's using, the trem guitar sounds that he's using, uh, maybe the way in which he's using piano as well. And Jay uses piano a lot of the time, almost as a rhythm instrument and not really as a as, as a percussive instrument and not really as a a lead or rhythm instrument. Um, and I feel as though that's done to perfection here on Witch's Wand. Yeah, we talk on the show a lot about Jay's sort of like extreme 90 degree, you know, inversion to just like incredible pop writing, you know, like cutting the fat. And we'll kind of get into this with uh, with another song on the record. But, um, you know, and then this is a guy who, you know, had written Snowsuit Sound and Junior Panthers, you know, in the 90s. And the quality that he is, uh, you know, putting out here is just off the charts. Um and again, we're talking about a record that is a baby brother or an afterthought in some arguments to never hear the end of it. For me, riddled with classics like Witches One. And speaking of classics, Ken. <laughs> right. So The Dogs is, um, which we've talked about again uh, extensively on Sloancast 30, in which we had a triptych of consecutive parallel play songs interestingly but um the dogs is for me the one that took the longest to warm up to but the one that i'm happiest about having warmed up to uh it is a journey into andrew's mind space it is a uh it's musically just you know i think one of the subtlest but most beautiful expressions in the catalog of taking one simple loop or one simple idea and turning that fleshing that out into an entire song and the way in which um as you mentioned earlier rob you start getting stacking elements uh throughout the song without even noticing it and then you've got these soaring you know these soaring harmonies happening and if you listen to the bass at the end too the bass is doing crazy shit um and you don't even know it because you you're taking you you know you're drawn through this so um so so carefully um, to steal a line from aaron pinto who's stealing a line from jason schwartzman the bass on this song is it needs medicine it's so sick <laughs> <laughs> the whole the whole thing like the whole package and I'm, I'm not sure that he did this on purpose i'm not sure that i don't know like this is the thing with andrews i don't know if this is a song that he wrote in five minutes or if it's a song that he needed five months to write you know and i think that that's the part of the mastery of this guy is uh he can make things that i'm sure require a lot of effort seem effortless and on the other on the other hand he can make he can make things i'm sure that are very simple quite complex too right 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I remember this being a bit of a grower for me as well, because at first I felt like this is a little drony, maybe, you know, it's like a little samey or something. And I think you just kind of have to embrace that vibe of the song. It's almost like that quote I read earlier where he said he was going for repetitive and hypnotic, but tuneful on too many. And maybe mm-hmm. it doesn't quite get there for us, but on this, <laughs> it totally gets there. So as I was saying, like, I see this as just sort of like the warm up for his later, more elaborate song suite style, you know, heavily produced, very creative, layered type experiments. But I have also learned to love this song over time. And this song is exemplary of the beauty of Sloan. You know, at once the immediate catchy pop songs and then these sort of work of art growers that are like a universe unto themselves. Yeah. And I don't know if you have anything more to say about this song, but I think that is maybe epitomized by then the transition to Living the Dream, yeah. which I will, is... I will say quickly. Oh, yeah. Go <laughs> yeah. ahead. But Living the Dream. Well, no, I'm just going to say, I mean, you know, that kind of encapsulates just the, the variety, the sonic range of Sloan, because you go from sure. this Andrew song that is this almost like drone or dirge, you know, in a good way to this very delicate do 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 it's like suddenly we're happy and everything's light and cheery and the instrumentation is completely different. So yeah. I love that transition too. And I guess again, Chris is sort of the condiment between the bread and the meat of mm-hmm. dogs and other side from Patrick, which is coming up shortly. Right. So you kind of yeah. so as, as as funny as it sounds to kind of go from the dogs and the living the dream, you, you really understand that that buffer that's taking place. Yeah, sure. right. Because if you sequenced it, you know, with the other side right after the dogs, I, I know they tend not to want to go back to back with songwriters. But even if they had gone from Andrew to Patrick there without the Chris Bridge, mm. it might be a bit too much, you know, right. kind of like sludginess, maybe back to back. Whereas yeah. I think separated by living the dream, it it really enhances all three of them. Yeah. Well, I think yeah, and living living the dream, if it's the riparian buffer that. Um, that you say it is Rob it's certainly like the prettiest buffer that I've ever heard I mean it's musically I think top three on this album um I will I'll I'll, I'll plead my case for why this isn't um a better song in you know uh, I'll rephrase that I'll plead my case for why this isn't ranked higher on my list of you know theoretical list of, of favorite Sloan songs but um it like what he's doing here musically is also just unprecedented it just feels so optimistic it feels so like sunny good times uh there's a Dave Clark five stomp going on in the second verse like the 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 fidelity of the of the production in, 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 in the chorus and, and the way that the vocals are, are melded together. It's, it's just, it's just fantastic. And I feel as though also it's, it's almost like a really heartfelt nostalgic reminiscence on, you know, what he felt the dream was, you know, for the first bit of the song. Um, and now I'll get to my, my, you know, lunchbox letdown. I can't get over the living the dream thing. Like I can't get over that he builds up and builds up and builds up. And at the end it, it's, it's then, it then resolves in, um, I don't dream for a living. I'm living a dream, which again could, 
I, I feel as though it's something that, that anybody could have written. And it's almost, you know, it almost feels obvious that that line is coming. And I know you've got an opinion on this, Rob. <laughs> Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. sorry, go, no, ahead, go ahead, Ben, please. No, no, you jump in because, uh, yeah, I was going to say, up, so. no, it's all good. Living the dream for me in this song is ironic, you know, like he's, you know, he's a dad, you know, living in his house and he's in a band that, you know, that are absolute, you know, the greatest band of all time. But I mean, in, in some parts of the world, they're sort of more of a cult act and that kind of thing. And they're not like the biggest band in the world as they should be. And he's certainly written songs. In, in previous albums that are about that. And you can tell throughout the career that his trajectory from day one was always to be like this massive bander for at least as many people to hear them as possible. Um, and so he has a lot of self-referential songs and, you know, songs that are looking inward uh, and sort of coming to grips with where he is. To me, this song is sort of like the sequel to fading into obscurity, like a, like a three minute yeah. pop song version of that song. Um, Because the sentiment is very similar, recognizing your position and relaxing into feeling more comfortable with that. Um, Like in the like in uh, Fading to Obscurity, when he says an outsider, but in good company. Um, And I love the lyrical refrain at the end there where he says, um, you know, interpretations like that make you wish you'd kept shut your mouth and your heart because your subconscious should be yours and no one else's. Um, You know, just thinking about, you know, your thoughts are your own and maybe maybe you saying something to please somebody isn't always the best idea when they w- didn't deserve to hear that inner thought, you know, mm-hmm. or that inner feeling. Um, and for me, yeah, the, like, I think, you know, the joke with this band could be, you know, like they're hauling their own merch to the truck and they get all their stuff back to the bus and, you know, they've just put on this massive show, but at the end of the day, they're not, you know, like this massive stadium rocking band or whatever. And, and, and the joke I think for bands at that level is living the dream, you know, like, you know, everybody's sharing a shower and sleeping on the floor and da da da, you know? So that's, that's my take on that lyric. Mm. Okay. Yeah. I like that interpretation because I was looking at it, I think more like Ken does. And I think, you know, I've said some nice things about Jay and we've complimented Jay's lyrics Chris is my favorite lyricist in Sloan just because of the witticisms and the wordplay and, you know, the clever turns of phrase. There are times when he is so earnest (laughs) that Mm. he kind of comes close to the line of maybe being a bit corny almost, you know, and – I think, you know, you look at something like this or or Dear Diary, for instance, and it's like, is this like kind of cutesy or almost twee? Like, I don't know that this would work for other people. And yet I think he usually pulls it off. And there may be a song a little later on this album where we could argue that perhaps he doesn't. (laughs) But I think for the most part, he does just because even if the lyrics are kind of on the edge of that line, the music is so good. Like you listen to the song and it's like. The bass needs oh medicine God. on this song also. Oh like, the God. bass yeah. is yeah. unbelievable with that just, like, incredibly melodic McCartney-style bass. Like, another dream pet Sloan project that I would love is just, like, isolated tracks of, like, the best Sloan, you know, bass performances, drum performances. Like, just let me appreciate those on their own. That would be wonderful. Yeah. But between that and the harmonies, which are amazing on this song, and just, like, so many hooks in a sub-three-minute song, which... It's a little like Shadow of Love in that way mm. where you, you almost feel like this could be a longer song or like multiple songs. There's like yeah. enough material to stretch it. And yet it's all just I'm firing my ammo all together right here. So, 
even if for you the live in the dream thing is a little cheesy or like you know inspirational like self-help poster or something i mean i understand that but the song itself just it makes it work for me i was just gonna say like i think like this is controversial perhaps for some to hear but i prefer murph to john lennon and when he says the dream is over similarly to the way lennon did i think that they're both saying that in the same way they're both very serious about that like the mm. dream is over for sure i think they mm-hmm. both feel the same way about their own bands in that way um but that's but that's where they split off and where lennon yeah. you know uh, you know as for as tragic as his life was you know was living the dream uh murph mm. is doing his own sort of nega universe version of that you know right that's my take on it that's an interesting take i mean i never thought about it that way and it's it's certainly like that's the one thing on this song that i trip over every time that make that prevents it from being a song that I, I would have rated higher in my whatever ranking of it's just this almost like and I know Murph has been quoted at quoted as saying like this is the jock cliche of you know of the post game interview with let's use uh I don't know uh let's use a refer- reference for Ben let's talk about you know Jorge Posada or something like the, <laughs> the post game interview with Jorge Posada after having won the world series is like oh live in the dream mm-hmm. and that's that's the that's the the most obvious reference but I guess if you dig a little bit deeper and I, I must admit this is the album that I've listened to probably the least of all the albums because of maybe initial reactions or whatever and i probably haven't had the greatest you know intimate relationships with the lyrics of the songs but if you if you reflect on them and especially in a chris song um then you can certainly dig out uh new facets so yeah i do want to make a uh, just quickly just uh, make a confession here that guys i've got a fever and i know the only prescription (laughs) is more cowbell i'm so sorry i just wanted to stick that in there Uh, but anyway yeah the other side let's do it uh how long will i slide um (laughs) so no i mean i don't know the other side is um maybe maybe the beginning of that sort of there are three or four songs in the second half of patrick pentland's um musical output that i could maybe kind of lump into that um did this song actually exist category like when i listen to commonwealth and when i listen to take it easy or something it's like oh yeah that there it is right i forgot right and the other side is for me maybe maybe the kickoff of that where i I feel as though there isn't enough happening here to make it stick um the tempo is a little bit lugubrious um it isn't a challenging sing for him per se and i feel as though patrick is at his strongest when he's really challenging himself vocally and this is more of like a sprechgesang it's more of like he's speaking like he's speaking more than he is singing in the, in in the in the verses which i'm you know i like patrick's voice and everything and i you know he's got a great speaking voice but he's at his best when he's really given it a good strain yeah. like him believe in me um whereas here it's more of a He's describing what's happening. There's a certain kind of feeling on the other side. And it's, you know, that is the combination of things that for me makes the other side one of the maybe black boxes in in in, in the catalog where I just like I never skip a track on a Sloan album, but this is where it's really kind of testing me. And even the vocalizing, like you just mentioned, like on a song that's similar-ish, like Backstabbing from Action Pact, it's got the cowbell and that. Um, And for the people who may 
dismiss that song as well. I, I love that whole album, but, um, you know, he's singing his ass off on backstabbing for sure. Um, and this album, this, this song for sure to me really sounds like Patrick doing his thing at home. Like I, in my mind, other than the drums, um, which in my mind were sort of more programmed than they actually appear to be like, there's some really cool fills and stuff in there, but this otherwise musically, I think this is just entirely him. This is like a home mm. project similar in the way to the way Andrew does songs. So yeah, I mean, to me, this is just, you know, even we're kind of getting the sort of like, um, um, what's the, oh, I'm, I'm blanking. Ugh. Uh, your dreams have come true from the end of pretty together, the sort of 808. That was the thing that kind of mm. caught me. I was listening to it again today. I was like, is that an 808 at the end before the mm. guitar outro? Like, yeah. you know, he's sort of meshing these sort of styles together and sort of bringing in different things that, you know, wouldn't necessarily exist uh, on a, between the bridges, for example, you know, where they're all kind of locked into their specific instruments and sounds and stuff. Yeah, I don't have much to add to what you're saying, and I can't contradict anything you're saying about <laughs> the song. So, I mean, yeah. two out of three ain't bad, right? I like. <laughs> I will say, I love yeah. the way he says "extraordinarily <laughs> gifted." I like that. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but anyway, we were talking about this song earlier down in the basement, and we were talking about you know you'd mentioned Ben Traces. To me, this song is far superior, and for the reasons I mentioned earlier, it's sort of the story of the band in a way. Like to me, that's what it really feels like. Um, you know, he mentions his sisters. We know what his blood type is now, you know, and and when he talks about songs being about nothing, he's really just reading, you know, part one of like a new journal entry or something in this song for me. And literally, like I said earlier, describing everything around him, he's talking about the paint fumes and recording gear, his family, and even having a dream about being kind of engulfed in, you know, the studio space and, you know, the mess of cables and things and um, so he's really painting a visual picture. And like I said earlier, enjoying the lyrics really took me out of even remembering that this is sort of like a Bob Dylan tribute music musically, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm with you. And I also just I find the difference in sound refreshing, I think, after the other side, especially, yeah. which brings the tempo down a bit. And even the dogs, which we all like, but it's very different from this. And this is just, you know, we didn't stretch to come to a sound. I guess he is stretching to come to a Dylan in the band type sound, but yeah. not stretching really from a production standpoint i mean it just sounds like they sort of set up and play the way that he's talking about in the song so i like that i think you know it stands out and it's a little less produced and layered and just sort of hey i'm just gonna bang this thing out and tell you about what's happening in my life these days (laughs) you know you you guys know me that i'm an andrew guy like that's you know i I love everybody in the band but like when and like you said ben like when andrew's at his best Sayonara suckers like that's that you can't wish for anything more <laughs> and it's just so it, i i i want him to be you know at a, in a place where he's challenging himself both lyrically and musically and that's not not in down in the basement you know that's at, maybe in the dogs even if he didn't know it that's where he's in that that uh that state of mind. Awesome. Well, with that said, let's get back to Jay's, uh, you know, the final triptych here. Um, and, and I've said this before on the show. I mean, for me, like, if you never hear the end of it songs and the parallel play songs for Jay 
could be this incredible Jay solo album. I'm, I'm happy that they came out on Sloan Records for mm-hmm. obvious reasons, but those songs really live together in my mind. Like Action Packed is different, Jay, and even by the time we get to Double Cross, he's singing about somebody and something else. That's Cleopatra era. So for Never Hear the End of It and Parallel Play for me, you know, these songs, a song like If I Could Change Your Mind, um, it really exists with Before the End of the Race, Can't You Figure It Out. Mm-hmm. These songs just feel cut from the same cloth, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And the best approximation of Motown that I've heard, you know, from a non-Motown artist, because how are you supposed to do Motown as like a white guy from Halifax, Nova Scotia? Like it, it, it really sounds like Motown. Like it really sounds like Stax, or like it, yeah. it, it sounds, yeah. but not, that didn't, not didn't, didn't, didn't. Yeah. That's exactly it. Yeah, and, and it's he's he's drawing on cues, and like he it he just shows his musical smartness in so many ways like he shows you you don't have to be a baroque revival band to quote you know 60s music or whatever you can do it in a tasteful way and in a modern and relevant way by knowing how old music was built and by knowing what distinguishes motown from you know other other music of that era and he does that in such a great way and it's the it's the way the piano is mic'd and it's the way you know the 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 structure between the 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 verse in the middle eight and how that's kind of setting up the tension and like it's without you know I, I I claim without the songs around it and this is again my skewed perception of parallel play but without the material around it I feel as though this would be a song that gets a lot more attention. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Yeah, and and, yeah, it, and it, I was it just going to say big shout out to Nick Deturo mixing mm, uh, for sure. Yeah, the, for the whole album. Uh, it doesn't hog the spotlight. It doesn't outstay its welcome, as I hope I'm not currently doing. It's just like it it gets in, it gets out. It's what two minutes seven seconds, yeah. and yet it feels like a fully formed song. It's not mm-hmm. like Emergency Nine One One, which is just a tad shorter, but it's you know that's more. I'm just going to get up there and vent, right? Whereas this. This, this feels like you know a, a produced and and planned out song, just intricately crafted, and yet also just sanded down to the second. Like every second counts in this song, you yeah. know. Not that yeah. I want it to end. Like I wouldn't turn down <laughs> more of this song, but it just it feels like it's the length that it should be, and yet it. It feels like longer than it is, but in a good way, you know, not like it's stretched. It just feels like that was all in two minutes, you know, for sure. And this is what we've been talking about. Jay cutting the fat, delivering perfect pop music. He's been doing it for albums now and will continue to do so. Uh, and yeah, I mean, hats off to him. And, and this is obviously Chris on drums as well, by the way, which I'm always freaked out when I find out a song, you know, years later is Chris playing drums. I, I, I'm fine with it. He's amazing. He's an amazing drummer, but yeah, it's always crazy to be like, Oh, that was Murphy. You're going to tell me like next that money city maniacs is Murph on drums or something. But, uh, Jay is, uh, I think he's aware of like when he's got a good thing, he's got to be aware of when he's got a good thing because he, he's maybe the guy that has like the least, the least you know grizzle on on his you know in his in his catalog like he doesn't i think he comes into the sessions maybe also with the fewest yeah. amount of songs and then keeps them but like he really works on his ideas and i think that this is also sort of a case where we know like I, i'm sure jay knew going into the sessions for parallel play that he had three really great songs and that he was able to focus his time more on how is this produced to make it sound really unique um and i'm really even getting 
like Philly sound vibes on here. You know, this could be a fucking sure. spinners song or something. It's it's sort of or later temptations. Like this is seventies Motown. You know, like later temptations, for even early Philly sound stuff, and that just is a testament to the dude's versatility. And that you don't have to be a big giant music nerd to appreciate the sound. You know, it's like you know, fuck, fuck the dudes at Spin Magazine who called Never Hear the End of It art pop. I didn't even know what art pop was in 2006 listening to Never Hear the End of It. I just like, I like the sound, you know, and you don't have to be, I'm not a huge music head. Like you guys are bigger music heads than I am. And a lot of the bands whose names Sloan and, and Jay Ferguson drop as their references. I don't know who those bands are, but I can listen to the music and it, it speaks to me in a way that, you know, is is relatable so um you, yeah. you know to do that to put out a song like if i could uh, if i could read your mind uh no if i could change your mind not gordon lightfoot <laughs> um, <laughs> if i could change your mind uh and uh and not have it be like this kind of arrogant you know snobbish music hipster nerd type thing that's i think that's also an art mm-hmm. yeah i don't know whether it's that he self-edits and just prunes the songs that he's working on so that he knows this is not up to snuff, this is not up to my standards, I'm not even going to bring it in, Mm. or whether he's just so meticulous about his process that when he has one, he just polishes it to perfection, and so maybe that's why he doesn't pump out as many songs necessarily, but everyone is held to that sort of standard, but really, he just delivers every time. (laughs) So at at this stage, like, I just can be confident that Jay is going to hold up his end of the bargain. And as we know, Lady Gaga read that art pop review, and the rest, as they say, is her story. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) on to I'm Not a Kid Anymore. Fun fun little point. Now, now, I I was talking about making a a case for this song earlier. Um, A little fun tidbit here, real quick. I was doing merch for the band, as I've done a couple times, and I think this was either late 2018 or 2019 might have been the show that we met at Ken, but uh, the band were playing it in the set, and it's always a song I love to see live. And I made a point of going to the stage to see the show, to see that song. And right before the previous song, before that, Chris was like shouting out the crew. He was like, you know, I just want to thank you know so and so and the road crew and this promoter and that guy and this person and that person. And he didn't name me, and that's fun. I wasn't waiting for that acknowledgement at all. It, it didn't even occur to me. Um, and then they played whatever that song was. And it's as if it were fate before Not a Kid Anymore. He goes, and by the way, I didn't mention it previously. I just want to say uh, thanks to our buddy Rob Butcher who's doing merch or whatever. And then they slam into, and they slam into the song. And so for, for whatever reason, this song's always been, it was it was a standout like uh, All I Am Is I Or Not is on this record for me. Those two were my, kind of my favorite songs when it first came out. Mm-hmm. And they continue to be my faves. Um, this song was, I think, originally written by Chris for a show at the time on CTV called Instant Star. Oh. Uh, and it was, a, it was a song that was going to be, um, you know, written by a character on the show and then performed. Uh, so, so he is really writing something here to, to feel like a song that anybody could write uh, or that a first-time songwriter could write, something simple. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I don't know if the theme of the episode was, you know, growing up or going from being a kid to not a kid anymore or whatever. And then Murph sort of swerved that into being about himself. Um, I know he definitely changed a lot of the lyrics after the song didn't end up being on the show or whatever, but that's sort of the original blueprint for the song. Just FYI. Mm -hmm. Hmm. 
was that earlier than the album or was that around the same time? I, it, was he sitting on this one for a while? Or No, to my memory, this, the, the show would have been within the year or so before the record. Okay. And I remember yeah. having pictures from the studio of the lyrics being different and him really working on them. But we, we have photos of studio lyrics for this song that are very hmm. different. Um, so... Uh, yeah, I'd be interested in reading the alternate lyrics, <laughs> but yeah. I think, we'll you know, I don't maybe Rob will open my mind to a new interpretation of, of this song as well, just like living the dream. But I guess it's it's the lyrics again or the sentiment that I stumble over here more than the music, maybe. And I guess it comes down to. <laughs> maybe he feels a little bit old to be singing the song at this point, which like maybe I, I know too much about this band and like at what stage of life these people are in at this point. But, you know, he is, what, 43 at this point? Like it's it's been a while since yeah, he's been, yeah. no, he been a he'd be 40. Yeah, at least like he's in his 40s for sure, which, uh, you know, I'm I'm 35 and I feel like <laughs> I don't need to tell anyone I'm not a kid anymore. Like it's pretty self-evident at this point. But I think, you know, this is what, like 12 years after autobiography where he's singing, you know, my new friends are all adults and my old friends all have scattered, which is a great lyric, one of the many great Murph lines and in that song specifically even. Mm. But like even then that was like the I'm not a kid anymore sentiment, right? And here we are twelve years after that point. And I don't know, you know, maybe he's like singing from an earlier, younger mindset that he had, or maybe he's not speaking for himself here. He's just, you know, writing for a generic character coming of age, you know, for the show, as you were just noting. But something about someone this far into their life and career with the I'm not a kid anymore sentiment, it's yeah. It's like, yeah, we know. <laughs> wait, wait till you hear. Wait till you hear his new song off of thirteen. Not a teenager in love. Um, <laughs> I, I definitely, for me, this song has always struck me as being like tongue in cheek for sure. Um, right, that and could there, be part of it. Yeah. There are fun. There, there are plenty of. I mean, I think he took the original song idea, which could have been a little more literal, and kind of is mm -hmm. having fun with it a little mm -hmm. bit more. Um, I can't drive past a sign here in Toronto that says loans without thinking about got a job at Anagram Loans. Um, and yeah, the stomps at the, the beginning. The sticks and stones is fun. Yeah. Oh yeah, just the wordplay here. Mm -hmm. Great. Not so much sticks mm -hmm. once I heard the Ramones. So good. Yep. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, and, and, and to the point, I, I remember, the, I don't know if it's in the the, the, the liners or if Greg mentioned it, or even Kevin on his episode, Kevin Hilliard is credited for this song as, mm. I think he's slapping a fridge. It's one right. of those mini fridges or something. Yeah. Um, so funny. Uh, and, and, and Murph bringing out language, even from my youth, like, you know, for crying out loud was definitely something like my parents said to me. Um, crying out loud. <laughs> and then his joke at the time about the scariest thing about my Halloween line is that I think at the time he, or perhaps even still, he's paying down a mortgage, so he's not a renter. Mm. Um, you know, just to not so there's too much to demystify there, but um, yeah. yeah, to me this is just a fun song, and for me the lyrics are hilarious and awesome, but but for me the the real star of this song is just the song itself. Like it musically mm. kicks so much fucking ass. When the guys played even to this day, it's just such a highlight of the show. Sure. So catchy, like a, an incredible example of a just massive Chris rocker. But I mean, couldn't. Could you have saved that for a side project? Like, could I'm Not a Kid Anymore have been maybe an EP release or something? Because I feel as though, like, listen to Take It Upon Yourself and Oh Dear Diary from the next album. Mm -hmm. like, holy shit. And this is, again, I think one of the reasons why, unfortunately, Parallel Play gets kind of 
shat on um from myself included is just like it's sandwiched by so much other great stuff so you know songs that would have gotten different attention from from me or from from other fans at different points in their career um had they had they been at different points of their career maybe uh maybe don't get that um but you know again i'm i'm it's it's within this context of the second half of parallel play and it's another song for me that is just it's a little bit generic right it's a little bit that you know topic that maybe anybody can sing about so had it been maybe the third song on the album or something i'm not sure maybe it would have been a different a different uh, a different take yeah i don't know man maybe it really does come down to the individual listener you know for me this song is just a ton of fun and uh not to be taken too literally or to be taken too seriously anyways we're on to track 13 um <laughs> i feel similar to when i actually reach track 13 as i'm listening to this song and, <laughs> and it's like oh we're we're ending on this note <laughs> but, i want to say yeah. about this song quickly we're talking about too many obviously this again feels like murph on drums like it's so playful and so fun hmm. um and and we've mentioned or at least i have in previous episodes where andrew seemingly takes a melody from an already popular song perhaps from the 80s or something and kind of like re-remembers it or regurgitates it through his lens the uh and then the rain comes falling down upon your skin sounds like would i lie to you by the eurythmics for some reason to me every time i hear it um you know would i say something that wasn't true uh and maybe i've just seen one crazy summer too many times but anyway i always think of that song when i uh, hear this one but like we were saying earlier, I mean, this is, you know, kudos to Andrew for, you know, appreciating a style and shooting for it. You know what I mean? Like, because when you think about his influence here, he is kind of nailing it. Um, and sure, whether yeah. it goes with the rest of the album or with the rest of the catalog or with them as a band or whatever is, you know, arguable to me. And honestly, I remember when I first heard this album, this was definitely the, the song where I was just like, eh, you know, but hearing it, <laughs> you know, with new ears and listening to it even today, I'm just like, this song is just fun. And it, I'm sure playing it live would have been a blast for him too. So, um, and Did a different flavor, live? a different color. They must've, I don't know. They, they must've played it. I'd be curious See, to go back and look. The thing about Parallel Play, and this taints my perception of any Sloan album, is I did, I think I saw two shows or one show on the Parallel Play tour. I didn't see that many. And it was right before I moved to Europe. Um, and uh, and I know that my nostalgic associ- association of a song, of a, of a, of a or, or an album, sorry, uh, with the tour is very much responsible for my... Um, for my esteem of the album, for my ranking of the album, uh, and never hear the end of it. You know, the tour for never hear the end of it was something that, you know, is, I, I, I build it up to be this big, giant, amazing time in my life. Um, and the same goes for action packed and pretty together. Like that was the point in time when I was really young, a young adult and independent and going to shows and following the band around and meeting friends and, you know, you have all these great kind of dewy-eyed memories about about those tours. And Parallel Play, I saw, you know, one show. I saw them open for Lenny Kravitz um, <laughs> at the Metro Center in Halifax, uh, where they did not play any Parallel Play songs, so I don't count that as a Parallel Play show. But um, the uh, I, I left for the Lenny Kravitz part, by the way. Um, the... <laughs> It was a free ticket. And uh, anyways, but um, I think that like, you know, the, there are songs on this album, which are probably meant for a live setting. 
you know, I'm thinking about emergency 911. That's, you know, the momentum shifter in the live set. And there are songs from here that are a lot more, um, you know, a lot more meant for private listening. And, you know, maybe if I could change your mind is one of those. Whereas there are songs on here where I don't know that they were meant for either of those settings. You know, I, I'm not sure. Did they play too many? And that's, we'll have to get into set lists or something after this. I don't recall them. I don't recall ever having seen a video of this being done live. It's, you know, to put it nicely, it's a song that maybe lives up to its name. <laughs> I'll say this for too many. Andrew was not wrong when he said there's too many people fighting wars that can't be won. For <laughs> so, sure. That's true. Yeah, absolutely. Yep, he was prescient up. in that sense. And yes, I do appreciate that he's stretching himself the way that the band still does, even more than 30 years into their career, whether it's trying something creative with an album as a whole or just trying something different with a song. They're still questing musically at times instead of just, you know, touring exclusively on their old songs or just churning out the same thing every time. And so not every experiment is going to work as well. But the fact that there are still those experiments is part of what makes them appeal to me so much. And I'll say also, I remember like when this came out, because I had just discovered Sloan, you know, just the the idea of the album and the album title and the sense that they were not writing together. This is something that, you know, people say about the Beatles in the years before they broke up, you know, they, they were writing separately and they weren't on the same wavelength anymore. And I was worried at the time, like, does this, you know, is this like foreshadow something like is Sloan splintering in some way? And will their last song be too many? (laughs) Don't go out that way. At least like wait for get out of bed or something. But yeah, I, I feel like, and, and I remember reading, I believe in the book have not been the same that I I think Sloan went through some sort of group therapy at this time. Mm. I believe that book says, I don't know whether it was during this album or after this album, immediately after it, but around that time. And that was not the first time, I think. And even when I talked to Chris and Jay, I guess it was back in 2018 for that article I wrote, you know, they acknowledged like you're in a band with the same group of guys long enough. Like there are some grudges and and riffs that develop. And as a slow fan, you're always kind of like, you know, not knowing what's going on, obviously, with the internal dynamics of a band and a group of of friends and longtime collaborators. But, you know, you're you're looking for any like cracks in the foundation and feeling like, I hope these guys are getting along. I want them to stay together and keep touring and making music yeah. forever you know it's almost like you hope your parents aren't fighting and are going to separate or something and so the fact that we are now many years on from parallel play and they're still together and they're still touring and they're still recording and nothing has changed <laughs> except that time has moved on and they have continued to make great music i'm grateful for that and that i didn't uh, discover sloan just on the precipice of something <laughs> so i've mm. gotten to enjoy half their career to this point and and i hope there are many more productive and happy years ahead you're here it's crazy that this album is almost 14 years old that that is unbelievable and Mm -hmm. uh yeah no i mean that's the big takeaway for me one that i'm so thankful that the band still exists that are still around we're like right at the edge of album 13 coming out at some point i would imagine in the future and um yeah, they've they've improved and you know uh, with age as far as I'm concerned, and I'm just so happy that they're still around. Like I was saying, um, and what was my other point? My other wrap up point. Oh yeah, my wrap up point. My other point would be 
as it has been with other episodes, is if you haven't heard this record in a while, if you haven't given it a chance or, um, you know, listen to it, check, pull it out, listen with new ears. There's so much great here to enjoy. Um, you know, there, there might be things that you might disagree with us about. And, you know, there are songs that we weren't such a fan of, but you really love that song and vice versa. So um, at the end of the day, it may have been overshadowed by the albums on either side. Um but uh, in the grand scheme of things, you know, for people, especially getting into the band today who didn't experience it that way, you know, there is so much here. There's so much gold here, uh, as we talked about. Um, yeah, th- that I think it's worth a re-listen for sure. And mm. um, yeah, I hope that anybody listening to this show, if you haven't heard the record in a while, please go check it out, whether it be Bandcamp or if you pick up a copy from their website or whatever. Um, it's just such a it's there is so much greatness here. Yeah. If this is the low point, which, you yeah. know, it isn't for all of us necessarily, but if it is for you or for Ken or for anyone, I mean, what a high low point, <laughs> you know, many yeah. bands yeah. never make an album this good. So yeah. if this is, you know, as unspecial as Sloan gets and it's still this special, well, that's just a, a testament to the consistency and the quality that they have maintained for decades now. I want to reiterate, this is my personal opinion of of this album i know people who whose favorite sloan album is parallel play like it goes to show you this band has a range and a depth in their catalog that can appeal to all kinds of different listeners so you know get your friends into this band you know get them to listen to all fucking 12 of the studio albums and more and i'm sure you'll make you know you'll make some new musical friends for life but um this uh as you as you mentioned ben is a testament to to really the the depth of of what they can do and what a great place to maybe tie a bow on the episode i just want to say ben dude thank you again so much man for chatting with us about this amazing album and for sharing your personal story which just definitely got me a little choked up listening to it uh (laughs) so cool (laughs) Uh, and we'll definitely be sharing, you know, the video that you sent us and some other things like that. Um, but yeah, yeah, thanks again so much, man, for joining us. This has been so fantastic. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. Yeah. Living a dream, at least, to uh, <laughs> get to talk about Sloan with you guys. And yeah, I'm, <laughs> on the remote chance that anyone from Sloan is still listening two hours into a podcast about Parallel Play, I'll say thanks again, guys, for uh, for playing that part in, in my life and in my wife's life. And I'm glad the timing was able to work out that way, because if, if Sloan hadn't toured that fall i think i probably would have had to pop the question before the timing had worked out because there was some some pressure some light pressure being applied um, <laughs> the fact that i waited five years or whatever it was to uh, propose was was just a reflection i think of of how secure and comfortable i felt in the relationship and uh, I, I didn't feel like jesse was gonna leave me if i didn't lock it down and in my mind i i pretty much already felt like well this is the girl i'm gonna be with so i don't need a piece of paper or or a beloved band to prove it, but I'm glad that it worked out that way. And also very glad to have been on here and hope I didn't hijack your podcast, but thanks for allowing me to. No, I love your story, man. And I'm so thankful that you shared it here. So yeah, thanks again, dude. Uh, And to wrap it up there, perhaps guys, we'll mention that the, that the band have dates coming up between April and June in uh, St. Catharines and April 22nd in Toronto, uh, Gravenhurst in on June 4th. And anyway, gang have just released some dates for May of this year. So go check that out if you're listening and, you know, find the guys on social media, check out their link trees, uh, 
see what they're up to, support this band because they're the greatest fucking band of all time, and we're so thankful that they exist uh, and that they've uh, you know intertwined themselves with our lives uh, so much. So, from Ken and Ben, thank you, listener. We'll check you next time on Sloancast. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.